Start talking the news. We're potting today. I was a part of it. Your Comic Con. I'm not wearing shoes. I'm not a stray. We're gonna cut right through the heart of it. New York, New York Comic Con! 2019! Welcome to We Are GTZ and Lum Ramiash's report of the latest New York Comic Con. We've got a ton of news to talk about, and we have a ton of awesome insights into our experience as the con, including panel reports of a ton of awesome events that happened at the show. Lord GTZ, are you excited? I, I guess I am. You should be, because this was your first New York Comic Con! That's a huge deal! Yeah, I mean, like... I'd been wanting to go for a while, but, like, the cards had never really lined up properly, or the badges had sold out completely before I'd get one. But this year, we finally uh, got badges for all four days. That we did, and I'm grateful we did, because this was also my first time being able to do all four days, and that's quite an experience, a, certainly a fun one, because there's tons of awesome stuff to do every day, and I was glad to experience everything we possibly could. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, there's a lot to do with New York Comic Con, as we'll go through, so being able to go all, like, four days was, like, really cool. That it was. This was my... Third New York Comic Con, I believe. My last New York Comic Con, I believe, was the one where Yusei Matsui attended, which I discussed on this show three years ago. So, it has been a while since I've been to NYCC, and I'll get it right front out of the way. You know, New York Comic Con as an experience I always felt was a little overwhelming, and I didn't think of it as favorably as I did Anime NYC, which is also held in the Javits Center that we attended last year. However, I will say that this year's New York Comic Con, I don't know how much it's been improving in the years since I last attended, I had a really good time. It was not as crowded. It was not as hectic or as frustrating. I would say New York Comic Con was a better experience than Anime Expo. I mean, that's that's not tough. <laughs> Honestly. Honestly, I feel like Anime Expo might have desensitized us to crowds. Yeah. So I don't think anything is going to be as bad as Anime Expo. But the lines weren't as bad for any panel we attended. It didn't feel nearly as cramped. There were areas of the convention center where it was difficult to parse through, but those are mostly in front of, like, the elevators and whatnot, or the escalators. And really, the biggest problem with New York Comic Con, I guess we'll get this off, right out of the bat, is the bathrooms. The bathrooms, there are not enough of them. There's a huge confusion about what were the gender-neutral bathrooms. They converted men's rooms into gender-neutral bathrooms, which was not very welcoming to a lot of women and non-binary folk who wanted privacy 
because of, you know, their urinals in the men's bathrooms and whatnot. Really, what your Comic-Con needs to do, and they really need to increase the number of stalls, and in women's bathrooms particularly, they need to, like, increase the number of stalls by double inside each bathroom. Because right now, there are, like, five stalls in both the men's and women's bathrooms, and the men's bathrooms also have uh, five urinals. What they need to do is they have to put ten in the women's especially, but really in everyone. There should be ten. There should be more bathrooms in general in this place because these lines for the bathrooms are tedious and insane, and people will often wait 40 minutes to get into the bathroom, which is a huge waste of time and really frustrating if you're trying to enjoy your con experience. Plus, most people, most people's bladders probably can't last yeah. that long. So, bathrooms, this was a problem I remember from my previous New York Comic Con experiences. That has still remained an issue. Get to work on it, NYCC. Make the 2020s a better bathroom experience for all. But, with that out of the way, let's Flush the toilet and twirl back in time to the very beginning, Wednesday, October 2nd, when we departed for New York Comic Con. And let's start right in the beginning of the morning, because the morning was a little bit hectic. It was a little bit busy. So, I guess I'll go first. I woke up early, so I could go out, get a haircut. First, I had breakfast and watched the final episode of Stroker and Hoop. Keep that in mind for later. It will become relevant for something later. Anyway, uh, I got my hair cut so I wouldn't be frustrated by having all this long hair. I had the comb every day. Got it nice and short. Then came home, waited for you to come back. Relord, you had to come back home early for a few reasons. One was to so we could all pack our stuff in one suitcase together. But second, you had an interview that morning with Nielsen at 10.30. Our flight was at 1. You had to get that interview done in 30 to 40 minutes and then we had to leave. How did that interview go? It went well. I'm not sure how much I could talk about the interview, but like it was kind of just talking about the role that I had applied for and just various stuff about Nielsen. Overall, it was pretty good. Sounds excellent. Anyway, we got out the door by 11.15. We got to the airport. We took our flight. It was a pretty decent flight. It went kind of quicker than I expected, which was good. I watched six out of the seven episodes of TBS's Miracle Workers on the flight, which was a really funny show starring Daniel Radcliffe as a angel in heaven in the Department of Miracles, but they can't really do a whole lot of really crazy miracles. And then God is played by Steve Buscemi, and he's like, you know what, Earth sex, I'm going to blow it up, start this new floating restaurant in space. It was a really funny show, highly recommended. Really wish I could have watched the last episode, but on the return flight, Delta had already taken off all the episodes, so... Damn you, Delta. I will have to watch it some other way. Even though apparently TBS won't allow me to use our Xfinity login. So, some other way. Anyway, what did you watch on the flight? I didn't really watch much on the flight. I kind of just, like, took a long nap. Yeah, you sleep a little bit too late. I think that... 
Sleep uh, is a huge thing that was a factor in our NYCC experience in terms of when we got up in the day. But we arrived in New York. It was really hot and nice and sunny. Oh, wow. This is going to be a great evening. We got in a Uber to our hotel right in the middle of Times Square. It was, what hotel was it? The Holiday Inn in Times Square. The Holiday Inn in Times Square. Good location. Only 10-minute walk from the Javits Center. But we didn't go to the Javits Center that day. No. We decided to go to the Nintendo store. So we dropped our things off and we headed right out the door and it started raining immediately. As soon as we took a step out the door, it rained on over us. And I had to go back to the room alone to get umbrellas. And thank God I saw the weather forecast. I knew it was going to rain. So I had packed those umbrellas. I had prepared. If I had not prepared, we would be drenched in the rain on our walk to the Nintendo store. But I got the umbrellas. We went to the Nintendo store. 10 minute walk. Well, no, it was more like a 20 minute walk. But anyway, Nintendo store. It was a pretty cool place. They got like Pokeballs on the door knobs. They're shaped like Pokeballs. Uh, the inside has a bunch of cool statues of Nintendo characters, like this really good one where Mario's on the top of the flag, and at the bottom of the pole is Luigi and Toad. That's pretty neato. And there's tons of awesome statues of, like, Link and other... Uh, there's Donkey Kong, tons of other Nintendo characters inside. There's a huge column of Pokemon plushies. There's just there's one completely dedicated to Pikachu and various forms of Pikachu. And then there's one with other Pokemon. And there's some really fun ones in there. I didn't think that Passimian plushes would be in vogue, but I guess they are. So that was pretty neat. Waylord, would you like to talk about uh, more of what was there? Because you actually bought some things there. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really buy anything, like, super high-tech or anything. I basically just got a Nintendo New York hoodie and then a Nintendo New York t-shirt, because, like, they only sell them there, apparently. So I decided I might as well get those. Aside from that, we kind of just, like, looked at everything. Like, I didn't know there was a Mario chess set, <laughs> so that kind of impressed me. But apparently you can buy that, like, a bunch of places. Yeah. So I guess I've been out of the loop. That was fun. There were some cool exhibitions there, like, or things on display there. There was, like, that Game Boy that survived the Iraq War and it's still functioning or something, and it's like, that's pretty neato. That it, it's yeah. all messed up, but it's like, it's burned, it's misshapen, but it still plays. It's awesome. And then, what was really cool is they had this display of, like, all the Nintendo consoles, both handheld and, you know, the uh regular console. And they have the history of it, basically, of all these different consoles, including all the varied versions. And that was really cool to see. Yeah, they also had, like, a display case of, like, all the different Amiibo figures. Yeah, yeah. That was, was really cool as well. They also, they had some, like, interesting, like, merch there, too. Like, they had, like, uh... They have, like, Donkey Kong notebooks where it's, like, a holographic cover. Yeah. And, like, it shows, like, the motion of, like, Mario jumping <laughs> over a barrel. Yeah. They have some really fun products there. It's a pretty cool place to check out. Yeah, you could uh, lose a lot of money by spending time in there. Yeah, yeah. But definitely a place we'd have to visit again, I'm sure, on our next trip. 
to New York. But uh, we spent a good half hour there or so. Then we decided to leave, and I was excited for this, finally to get the sweet taste of these Scotty Rolls again at Indie Catch. And they apparently had opened up more locations since I was last in New York. They got bought out, I think, by Deep Indian Kitchen. So now they were, like, called Deep Indian Kitchen. But it was still the same Indie Catch flavors I loved. And the best part about it was there was a location in Times Square, at least three minutes away from our hotel. So we walked on over to Indie Catch. Uh, we ordered Kati Rolls. And we sat down. I ate them. I enjoyed my chicken casserole so much after over a year and a half. And V-Lord, you tried it for the first time. Yeah, and it, it was amazing. I, I can see why uh, why you like it so much. Uh, honestly, I'm surprised it hasn't expanded outside of New York yet. Because I feel there's a lot of potential for it in like the... Like, central metropolitan, like, Midwest area, as well as, like, on the West Coast, where, like, both of those have, like, a lot of Indians who would, like, more than happily eat that stuff up. I love a location in Minnesota I could visit to get more of those juicy, yummy, gothy rolls. But, alas, they are concentrated in New York right now. We will see if they expand to other states in the future, yeah. but the fact that they've opened up so many more locations in New York alone in just a year and a half since I was last there is pretty promising that they're doing quite well for themselves. And yeah. I certainly am looking forward to coming back there again next month when we're down there for Anime NYC. We'll take Sakaki and Jekka there too, and we'll all enjoy those yummy coffee rolls together. <laughs> I love those coffee rolls, man. They're just oh so God. soft and juicy and spicy. There's nothing like them. I had them I so much. You're not wrong. I am not wrong. But we went back to the hotel afterwards and just chilled for the rest of the night. We watched New South Park, which was absolutely hilarious. I was lukewarm on the season premiere, but the newest episode, great. Did you hear that they got banned in China thanks to that episode, V-Lord? Oh, I mean, I'm not surprised, but... Yeah, did you see Matt and Trey's quote-unquote apology on Twitter? Where they were like, just like the NBA, we totally love money over democracy and freedom. We're sorry, China. Winnie the Pooh totally looks like your prime minister or whatever. <laughs> like, that was so good. When you have, like, the NBA, like, revoking tweets that one of their coaches made over supporting democracy in Hong Kong because it agitated the Chinese government, like, it's nice to know South Park, at least, has some integrity. Genuinely. Integrity. Yeah. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. I appreciate that. We'll be curious to see how they address that in the season going forward. That was real fun. Oh, also, uh, we watched The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and some very popular gamer was on it that you got excited about. Ninja? Ninja, yeah, yeah. So that was yeah. interesting. 
But anyway, that was yeah. the night, and that was day zero. And then Thursday, October 3rd, we woke up a bit late. I think one thing we'll mention just for all these days is that I don't think we left our room earlier than 10. And we definitely didn't have a real breakfast on any of the days because we got up so late. Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. But here's something we'll talk about before we get into the con events. So right that morning, the Hinoarsuo epilogue chapter dropped, and you got very excited about that. Do you just want to go over what happened in that chapter and what made you so happy about it? Um, yeah, sure, I guess. Um, so, Hinamaru Sumo ended a while back, and the only one complaint anyone really had about it was that the ending is a bit abrupt. Um, everything is basically resolved, but, like, it doesn't really show you what happens to the characters afterward. This epilogue, as, like, you'd assume, it does that. It shows the characters after the September tournament and, like, how their lives are going and, like, what they're doing now, which is just, like, really cool to see. And it's just overall just a really sweet chapter and, like, kind of one last hurrah for the series. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was, like, a really enjoyable read. Yeah, very sweet ending. I thought it was kind of weird that there were, like, these fake-out dream sequences with Hinamaru's wedding and then Hinamaru's night with his wife that had weird twist ends. It was, like, did that actually happen, or were those just dreams? But I thought it was a very funny, very heartwarming chapter to conclude this series on. But yeah, that was really neat to go to start to the day, and we headed into the Javits Center, which was super easy. I was quite surprised. It went really fast, the back check and the lines. I don't think it took more than a couple minutes. Really, really nice. Very different compared to Anime Expo. But, yeah, we got in just in time to attend the first panel of our first day. The dynamic duo, Christopher Sabat and Sean Schemmel's panel. So, this was basically a panel where Sabat and Schemmel, you know, they kind of played off each other, ribbed on each other. There was this bit where they had this portable face fan or something. There was, like, this weird device that was shaped like headphones that, like, blew air on them. And they were playing around with that for a bit. So they had, like, this funny, like, prop comedy thing going. But it was an interesting panel because what they do is that they bring an audience member up and they ask them questions, and then they kind of rib off them. So it was kind of a interesting role reversal. Though they did do some traditional question answering, too. And the first person they brought up was, you know, this really energetic kid, and it was very delightful. There was a moment where it was like, uh-oh, because the kid brought up that they had met Wick, at a con before, and uh, I just remember, like, everyone in the con was going, oh, no, and, like, Sabat and Shemel's face were, like, super grim upon hearing that name, and they were super nervous about what the the question was going to be, what was going to happen next, but, like, basically, the kid got around to saying, Sabat and Shemel had, like, these autograph signings and photo ops at their boots later, 
and the kid was saying they had only enough money for like the the autograph but not the photo so she was like asking whether they would take their photo and then the entire audience erupted in laughter a laughter of relief Shemel and Sabat were definitely relieved and they were like you don't have to worry about that at all kid so it had a nice heartwarming ending to it uh, after a bit of anxiety there i think chamel even said that went in all sorts of weird but ultimately a happy direction something to that effect you know so that was pretty neat i had taken so many notes on this panel more notes than i needed to because i don't know if i'm gonna write this up but they went into this a ton we could talk about the length of the panel, everything that happened in this panel, because there were so many jokes and moments and whatever. But I think I'll say my piece on that. So any moments that stuck out to you, Elord? Uh, I mean, I guess just overall it was just a really fun panel. Um, I really liked the parts where, like, Sh- uh, Sean Shemmel was kind of, like, getting, like, fake jealous about uh, Sabbath's, like, roles. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Because he was jealous about... That he was not in My Hero Academia. <laughs> and then, like, a lot of people were just asking, like, uh, questions of Sabbath. Yeah. And at one point, Sean just, like, is like, oh, oh, I, I see how it is. And he's like, walks off the stage. Yeah, he's sulking. But there's a joke at one point, <laughs> right? Oh, the Chris Sabat panel! <laughs> With Sean Shemmel for some reason here. It was so funny. Yeah. They're such good performers, man. They really know how to play things up for comedy so well. That was a great bit throughout the panel. Like, Sean's resentment of Sabat being in so many roles and him not having his big roles. One Piece was definitely brought up as one is where Sean doesn't have, like, huge role in One Piece. Aside from playing that one villain in uh, Strong World. So, that was pretty delightful. Oh, there is one q and I want to mention, like, about Sean talking about his performance of Zamasu, which was interesting because he noted that he played him more straight in Xenoverse 2 DLC because they literally did not have any notes about the character at all. All he was told by the Japanese producers were, like, he's evil Goku. And when Sean asked for more information, they were like, no, we can't give you more. So he could only play him as, like, evil Goku in that game. But once they were actually dubbing the show, when he understood what uh David Gray was doing with Samasu and then what the actual character Goku Black was, that's why he changed the voice and added that British accent thing for his portrayal of the character in the actual show. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing that they mentioned there. I think another interesting point they mentioned is that they really appreciate that the shows that they do are simul now, that, like, they are recording them as people are watching them instead of back in the days of DBC where there would be, like, months after they recorded before people would actually get to watch them. And how that has really changed the game for them in terms of, like, their need to give the best performance and, and, like, dedication to being the most absolutely faithful they can be. So I thought that was a really interesting point they brought up too. Sean and Sabat also mentioned that they were excited about being on this new show called Franklin and Ghost. 
where Sean gets to play a jerk for once. He was very excited about that. He was also excited that he got <laughs> cast in this role, uh, even though that the creator, Garrett, had never actually watched Dragon Ball. So he wasn't typecast. So he was very happy uh, to be, you know, cast, you know, just on the basis of performance and not because he was Goku. Sabat is also playing a villain in the show. So very, very interesting stuff. Going to be interested in seeing how Franklin and Ghost comes out. I remember, I think, the final, like, question thing in the panel was, like, one woman had this Dragon Ball tattoo where she said she doesn't like it, but if they thought it was cool, she'd be okay with it. So she came up on stage, showed them the tattoo, and they were like, yeah, you know, I, I think it's pretty good. It's a good tattoo. So I think that was the last question slash fan interaction thing that happened in the panel. So, a lot of fun events that happened there. Yeah, so, a lot of information actually happened in that panel. A lot of interactions going over these notes. But we'll move on now to our next thing. So we actually split off after the Sabat and Shemel panel. And I attended this panel called Writing for Comics Like the Pros, which was hosted by ComicsExperience.com, which is, I guess, a comics teaching platform the creators of this platform have like books out called writing comics like the pros and comic experience guide to writing comics there were some very interesting panelists there was wita ayala a freelance artist frank gogol an indie artist uh, tim howard greg pock who is known for planet hulk and marvel and some superman stuff uh wrench Dovek and Andy Schmidt. Andy Schmidt is a former Marvel and IDW editor. So a pretty interesting group of uh, panelists there. I was interested in going to this panel because I thought they would talk a little bit more about the structure of writing for comics. You know, just like the formatting of it, like how the writing is planned out. And they did address on that a bit in Q&A, and it was pretty straightforward. But really, this was more of a general, you know, how to start writing comics, like focusing on fixing writer's block, going over, like, basic narrative theory about storytelling in terms of, like, hero's journey. Uh, protagonist needs to have an action, needs to take an action to achieve a goal kind of thing. So it was enjoyable panel, but I didn't quite get as much information out of it as I was hoping. But there were still some good nuggets uh, in there that I appreciated. Actually, there was uh, some interesting point about like how they break down a story structure within the span of a single issue comic itself. Where like they try to have the inciting incident. Uh, in every issue happen by the third page. In general, the first four to five pages should reach the inciting incident for, like, every issue of a book. And, like, every issue of a comic should have, like, a complete story structure, and that should fit into the larger story structure of, like, the ongoing narrative. And basic, some really cool stuff. Uh, one breakdown I really liked was page one should make the audience go, Oh, what? Page two should make the audience go, oh, really? And page three should make the audience go, oh, snap! So that was a pretty funny, like, breakdown of, like, how you need to hook your readers early on in a comic. So 
some really neat comic theory stuff there. I enjoyed it quite a bit. But, Wee Lord, what did you do while I was at this panel? I kind of just, like, wandered around the, uh, dealer's hall area and just looked at all the various booths. Mm-hmm. There honestly was, like, a lot less that interest to me than, like, I was hoping. Like, I found Viz's booth and eventually I found, like, Yen Press and Dark Horse's booths. But beyond that, there, like, weren't a lot of, like, anime and manga related, uh, uh, like, dealers. A lot of them were just the very big ones. And even some of them, like, Kodansha, weren't there, which was kind of weird. Yeah, because Kodansha had a panel that we'll talk about in a little bit, but they didn't have a booth presence. One thing that I just realized today was G-Kids had a boot at New York Comic Con, and I didn't see it at all when I was there, when I was perusing Yeah, I, I mentioned it to you. Well, I did not see it at all when I was there, so it was hidden away somewhere, or I just... Yeah, it, it was pretty small, but, like, they had, like, one of their reps there, and, like, they were just, like, showcasing, like, small, like, posters of, like, various shows that they have licensed. Mm-hmm. But I'll talk more about my experiences with the Dealer's Hall a little bit later. So instead, let's discuss Ruby. We headed down to the Hammerstein Ballroom, which is the first time I've ever been there in my New York Comic Con experience. And that's about a 10-minute walk from the Javits Center. We went there a little early to ensure that we'd have seating, because we didn't know how in demand it was going to be. And I think it did fill up, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be in terms of line and organization. But we got in there. They directed us up to the balcony seating because the bottom main floor seating was reserved for lottery ticket winners and Basically, the lottery ticket system is something NYCC does where it sends you out an email a few weeks before the show. You reserve some high-demand panels that you want to see. It enters you into this lottery where you may have a chance to get priority seating, special access seating to the one of these events that you have interest in. So for us, we actually did receive lottery tickets for... The Adult Swim panels on Friday, but not for Ruby. So with Ruby, we went to the balcony seats. We managed to get some pretty good seats where we could still see the stage and screen, which was very, very helpful. And at the beginning of this panel, I just want to mention, is that they have these MCs. For this Ruby panel, it was MC Amanda and DJ Dave. And basically what they do, like 15 minutes before the start of the panel, is that they play a game with the audience where they make the audience pick a category and then they get their the volunteers that they pick from the audience on stage should say something that's in that category. So, for example, Disney characters is one. Breakfast cereals is another. Pokemon is another. But what's kind of frustrating about this is that they actually don't really take suggestions from the audience. They take what they want to hear. Uh, from the audience, really. Because even when the audience, like, kind of yells out categories loudly that they want the, them to do, really, they kind of fall back on the same olds. 
like Disney characters and Pokemon and whatnot. Like, it's kind of definitely manufactured in that win. I kind of get it because, like, the MCs kind of also need to know the category so they can know if, like, one of the uh, volunteers gets something wrong. So, actually, that's another brilliant part about the game is that they have the audience, like, say, biz, like, loudly say when someone is actually incorrect about something so really they let the audience do a lot of the work for them too in terms of recognizing when someone is wrong and needs to be eliminated so it's kind of a cleverly designed game in that respect but i did find it, find it was kind of amusing that they say that oh the audience chooses the category but really the audience chooses the category that we have already predetermined that we want to do so I thought that was funny. But anyway, the Ruby panel started. I took so many notes about the actual game that I'm not going to even go into about when people got something wrong, whatever. But anyway, the Ruby (laughs) panel. I don't know. I thought I would write this up later. I didn't know that they would live stream it and make it publicly available for you to watch, meaning that it's pointless to write it up. But anyway. Carrie Shawcross, showrunner and co-writer of the show, was on the panel. Miles Zuna was on the panel. Uh, also, co-writer, voice of John. Lindsay Jones, voice of Ruby. Weiss's voice actress was on the panel. I didn't write down her name for some reason. Aaron Schneck, Blake was on the panel. Barbara, was who plays Niang, was on the panel. Basically, all the voice actresses of Team Ruby plus the main two showrunners were on the panel. And they basically mentioned a bunch of news about Ruby up front, like how Ruby characters are going to be in Smite in November. And they mentioned some funny things about, like, them having to record, like, two hours worth of, like, grunts and bad jokes for the panel. And there's, like, one really great anecdote about them realizing, you know, Weiss wouldn't be able to tell a good joke, so she has to tell a really bad joke. Like, mirror, mirror, and then the joke just goes completely flat from there or something. But that was kind of funny. And uh, they mentioned that there's a Rooster Teeth collab with four fans by fans, where fans can submit their own design to become an officially licensed t-shirt. They announced that there's going to be a new prose book, Ruby Before the Down, that's going to be about Team Coffee and Sun teaming up. That's going to come out in July 2020. That was written by Carrie Shawcross and Miles Luna themselves. On the question of whether this bonus material will be canonized in the main show, they said, well, they kind of like that they can explore this stuff in supplementary material, like playing with the world a bit and not really have it tie in that much to the main show, but you know, you never know. They they could make it a reference in the main show. Uh, they promoted the Ruby Official Companion book, out now by Viz. They mentioned that they're working on more Ruby anthologies, this time a set of books focused on Team Juniper, and those will start coming out next year. They mentioned the Ruby DC comics that are starting to come out. They talked about Neo coming to the cross-tag battle on November 21st, 2019. They mentioned that they kind of played into like the fan theory joke that Neo's voice is uh, the singer of Ruby. Oh, Casey Lee Williams. Casey Lee Williams, yeah. So Casey Lee Williams recorded all the grunts for Neo, so they kind of 
did that as a little wink to the fans who had the like fan theory that Neo's voice was Casey Lee Williams. So that was pretty funny. They mentioned that there are new Ruby shirts that are going to come out of the Rooster Teeth Shore. There's new outfits for Team Juniper and William Seven alongside, you know, the previously revealed new outfits for Team Ruby. Blake's voice actress was so excited about Blake's bob cut. Yang's looks really cool with new sunglasses. And they mentioned some really big news that they're working ahead on the volume. They're very ahead, and everyone's working normal hours. I was very happy to see this get a lot of applause. You know, uh, can't ignore the fact that Rooster Teeth did recently lay off 12% of its staff. So it's not a complete victory, but at least, like, they're treating their workers more humanely now. And the animators are working good hours, actually, so, you know, improvements are being made, and volumes 8 and 9 have been greenlit in advance, they've been given the budget to start working on them years in advance, and actually, Carrie mentioned that on the very morning of this panel, they had started writing the first script for volume 8, they mentioned that volume 9 is going to be shorter, so volume 8 going to be longer, but both are basically connected, and big things will happen in it, so they wanted to do them right. Then they showed the trailer for Volume 7, which got everyone very excited. You know, it basically shows Team Ruby fighting in Atlas. A lot of applause at Yang's entrance in the trailer with her new sunglasses. And then they had a tease at the end of the trailer that I forget what was being picked up and taken or whatever. It's one of the relics. Yeah. I forget, I forget what the relic is called, but yeah. like... It's the one that has the genie, basically. Yeah. I think there was, like, a character who picked it up, and people were, like, shocked at that character. Was it Cardin, that bully from the first season who bullied John? I thought that was my first thought when I saw it, but maybe it's not. I don't know. Wait, did they even show their face? Yeah, I thought we saw their face. I don't it was, like, think some, we saw their face. It was some dude. I think we saw their face. I need to rewatch the stuff to see, because I don't remember seeing a face. I remember seeing a face. Was there a face? Well, I, I literally just looked at the trailer. There was no face. There's no face, really. Yeah, it literally ends with the hand picking it oh, up. Oh, but we see and... the back of this guy. We see the back of this guy, and that's what made me think. Really? Yeah, look at the back. Like, there's this one shot where he's approaching Ruby, the genie thing is on the front of her. Like, you see the back of this guy. We don't see his face, but we see, like, the back of his head and shoulders. He's brown-haired. He has, like, this blue vest on. It's at 1 minute 13 seconds into the trailer. Is that Cardin? I don't know. It might be a different character. Cardin has a different hair color, for one thing. Okay, well... I think people were people were very shocked either way when this moment happened. So I thought it was I think a they were more shocked that someone's got the relic. Okay, sure. I don't know. I wonder if that character will ever return, or if it was just a one-off character that was completely irrelevant at the first season. Anyways, then they showed actually. Oh wait, they did Q and A first, where they talked about some. Stuff they really liked about the the upcoming season. Like, they talked about what their favorite part of Ruby was. They all mentioned that it was basically a life-changing experience for them. Created a 
really great community they can be a part of and a family and the fellow cast members. Yeah, there was a question about will we see refs to the side materials in the main show, and their answer was like, maybe. And no, you never know. Uh, is there a reason Team Ruby is loaded up with belts? This was kind of a joke question, and Lindsay Jones' voice of Ruby was like, basically, because it looks cool, and Yang Dortrass said it was that it was in case they're bad girls. Uh, there was a joke <laughs> about, like, Weiss is Butler giving them to, giving belts to them or something, and then Weiss's voice actress was like, it's called a Beltler. So that was a kind of a funny <laughs> bad pun joke. Uh, Miles mentioned that Mile, uh, Weiss might have been punished as a kid. Uh, there was a joke by Lindsay Jones of, is Weiss the MacGyver Ruby? And then there was a follow up joke that's like, does anyone in the audience know who MacGyver was? So. But there was laughs of the joke, so surely some people did know who MacGyver was. Uh, the next question was, like, hardest line they ever had to record. Blake's word director said it's, like, it's a certain line from Volume 6 that she had to convey in just a few words. And Yang's word director was, like, it was a toss-up between Yang confronting Raven in Volume 2 and... When Yang confronted Blake in the classroom, also in Volume 2, uh, Miles was like, the hardest scene for John was like when he was looking at the Pyrrha statue. And, yeah, so there were some good answers there. The next question was like, which character do you want to be stuck in the escape room with? And there is some answers for Pyrrha. Uh, I think Yang would break the wall down. Oh, Professor Pork, I think, was the name of the guy who would just figure it all out. I don't know. Port? Is, is that his name? I uh, have no idea. My notes are getting real screwed, but even I can't make them out. Oh, Ren. Ren would be so chill. Miles mentioned that. And then Carrie said he would go for Sun, even though he would be no help at all. But he'd be really fun. And a Weiss's actress mentioned that they would just make out with... What's Weiss's boyfriend's name in the show again? I mean, no, it's become super scribbly. Weiss had a boyfriend? Uh, member of Team Sun. You mean Blake? No! His boyfriend? No, I'm talking about a member of Team Sun... Neptune? Neptune, that's what it is, I think. That a thing. Anyway, Sun would squash a clock. Carrie mentioned that. Anyway, I can't even figure out what the last question was because my notes have gotten super scribbly. So, anyway, uh, they showed the first 12 minutes of the first episode of Season 7, which is basically the gang arriving in Atlas... Realizing that it has been basically turned into a fascist, capitalist, militarist uh, state by Ironwood. Ironwood has basically made it a military state. And so they can't really trust him. So they have to meet with an old friend of Maria's called Pedro, who like made her eye implants. And Pedro mentions, oh... 
I know you, T-Movie. My daughter told me so much about you. And we're like, what? Who is his daughter then? But that isn't revealed because then T-Movie has to the fight a bunch of Grimm. And it cuts out right when uh, Grimm is about to pounce on Blake after she has helped Yang out. And it cuts right there. It's super abrupt. So who is Pedro's daughter? How does she know Ruby? So... I was thinking about this for a while, and I think it might be Penny. Penny? You think, oh, he might have made Penny? Okay. Yeah. But Penny's dead. They just rebuilt Penny. She's a robot. I guess, but she have her same memories? Unless her memory, like, unit or something was destroyed, she'd probably be fine. I guess that'd be a big reveal. Kind of heartwarming to see Penny return. You know, like one of the two big losses in the end of season three, you know, now, hey, an old friend it survived, actually. That's pretty nice. But that was the Ruby panel, and afterwards we headed back to the Jabbits for the Yu Yu Hakusho reunion panel. And this was not the full four-man team of Yu Yu Hakusho, which... You know, kind of makes sense, since I'm sure Sabat and Huber have some bad blood going, considering. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how their professional relationship is going to be going forward. But, no, it was just Justin Cook and Chris Sabat. And they started off the panel... Basically going over the new Yu Yu Hakusho steelbooks, revealing that they commissioned exclusive art for these steelbooks. They included Easter eggs in the key art, like the soccer ball and like the art for Volume 1. And when all parts are put together, you know, they show, like in the combined image, like the Dragon of Darkness flame in the background, like coiling around all the cast members. It makes one big collage. They showed off the Season 3 steelbook art, which had Genkai in it, and it also had the Keke Genkai in the background. Uh, and then they had a special announcement, the big announcement, which was that Funimation has indeed licensed the Yu Yu Hakusho OVAs made a couple of years ago for the 25th anniversary, included in the 25th anniversary Blu-ray box set in Japan. Now that Funimation is bringing them out over here, and they will be dubbing them both two shots and all or nothing. They will be made available. They did not specify what format they'll be made available in. Uh, we're speculating that if they re-release the movies slash OVA set, they'll include them in there. Uh, after they release that season four Blu-ray set, they might re-release the movies OVA set, include them in there. Or they could probably stream them as well. We will see what format they're released in. But they are coming, and they will be dubbed. The cast will be getting back together. Justin Cook is going to make sure of that, because he, he loves the OG Yu Yu Hakusho cast. When they did those other OVAs just a couple years ago, he made sure to get back even obscure characters, their original actors, because he really wants to celebrate the original voice cast. He really loved that crew. So that was pretty cool. It's really at this point, after the announcement of the OVAs, where Cook and Sabat were actually invited on stage. And it's funny because 
Sabat said, I am here in Kuwabara's voice. He was like, I am here. I'm Kubara, the man. <laughs> and, yeah, they basically mentioned how much they love playing these characters in the show. Like, Sabat loves opportunities to re-experience, you know, things he's worked on before, but have become important now to fans and himself. Uh, because they know now that the shows that they were working on, they are important to people. Like, they didn't really have a sense of that when they were working on DBZ, why they track in the day, but they do now. And Justin was, like, going down memory lanes throughout this panel. Like, he was talking about old conversations he had with Sabat back in the day where they were discussing the characters. And they went through a bunch of interesting questions. Like, they were asked, did you know about Yu Yu Hakusho before you started working on it? And Justin was like, you know, I only really knew about it when Funimation acquired it. And he was looking to make this show his in the same way Sabat made DBZ his. And Chris was like, you owned it, bro. And, yeah, Justin is clearly a huge fan. And Like, Sabat mentioned that Justin has a ton of YYH memorabilia in his house. He could make his own museum one day out of his YYH memorabilia. And, basically, Justin was cast as you, as a Yusuke because, you know, Yusuke was kind of unknown. The previous cast director Barry just decided to cast him and he had already watched every episode before recording so he kind of knew how to play the character and he also knew very importantly that the narrator of the show is George so they knew in advance to properly cast that character with that in mind and Justin mentioned that he was very inspired by Chris's work on DBZ, and that's how he learned the ropes and how to be both the, the director of the show and also play a character on it, and in terms of directing himself on his own show. And they both mentioned that they're like more harsh now, because doing takes was harder back then, so it wasn't as easy to do redos, it was more costly, but now they have more leeway to do redos and be picky. And there's also more responsibility, of course, because of simuldubbing and instant feedback to be, you know, the best possible. And they mentioned how Funimation used to be basically literally a bank that was just full of a mishmash of cables, but they made it work. They mentioned that it was pretty tough because there was no air conditioning past 5 p.m. So, of course, they were working long days without air conditioning. And Justin mentioned that, you know, they recorded multiple episodes in one session. So you're pretty tired by the end. And so you move through a lot of story at the same time. It's very different than now where they record one episode at a time. Chris mentioned that, like, he loves Cyboldogs because he sees the director every week and he really feels like he's a part of a current show. And he likes the spirit of that better than recording in batches like they did back in the day. And it makes the dub feel, like, more relevant. It makes it feel, like, more closer to the parent show when it's more immediately released. They were asked what set Yu Yu Hakusho apart from what other shows they worked on, and Justin was like, Yu Yu Hakusho, you know, was such an inspirational show for many that came after it, and the fu on Funimation specifically, like, the Funimation team learned a lot from this era of shows, Yu Yu Hakusho, Blue Gender, and Fruits Basket, so 
Yu Yu Hakusho is an interesting show in of its of itself, but historically, it's also his, interesting in the history of anime dubbing and Funimation as well. And Christopher Sabat made a very good, interesting point that the Yu Yu Hakusho really felt like an underground show, and it holds up really well today. The music still sounds cool and haunting. Uh, it has it sounds very analog. It, you, and this is a big, really great quote. It's that. You know, if you were cool enough to watch something besides DBZ back in the day, you would watch Yu Yu Hakusho. And I think uh, that basically kind of encapsulates the, how a lot of Yu Yu Hakusho feel about that about the series. But when they were asked about like uh, favorite arcs, Justin mentioned, and I think you were very happy with this, that his favorite arc was Chapter Black. And he also likes how the animation style sort of changes in every arc. And he loves the new actors that they were able to bring in through every arc, and uh, he also liked the video games. And Chris's favorite uh, part of the show is when he got to be Justin's daddy, quote-unquote, when he played Ryzen in the Street Kings arc. And then they called a really great Kuwabara cosplayer on stage who, like, was super, super cool. And... And then there was a joke about whether anyone had cosplayed as Elder Taguro so they could, you know, reenact the fight. <laughs> but there wasn't, sadly. But yeah, that Kuobar cosplayer was super awesome. Oh, and then this made Chris Sabat really happy, is that they actually played clips. They played two clips from the show. They played one, the first one they played was Kuobar awakening, like, the full power of his, like, spirit cutting dimension sword, watching Yusuke about to sacrifice his life in the battle with Sensui and that whole montage of their, you know, bonding moments plays from episode 89. And the second clip they played was when Yusuke is lamenting Kuwabara's quote-unquote death and then, like, reacts with, like, comic shock and uh, disbelief when it's revealed Kuwabara was actually just faking it. So they really pulled in two great clips to show the relationship between Yusuke and Kuwabara. And what made Chris Sabat really happy about this is because he, he, they rarely do this in panels, where they like play old clips and they get a chance to revisit and comment on their old work. And they mentioned, though, that the audio mix in these old clips, like at, from a director's perspective, he would like to redo that completely uh, over and over again to fix the balancing issues on that. And Justin was like, well, only 17 years too late. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Sabat was mentioning more on that, that computers were so crummy, you couldn't really pull up old clips like that, so you really had to re-record your lines. And it was really hard to record as Kuwabara serious scenes because he gave him such a silly voice. So... It was really a learning experience playing that character, you know, because they were young, they were still learning how to be voice actors, really. They were at the beginning of their careers. So, you know, Kuwabara was kind of an important role for Sabat in that respect. And Sabat also mentioned that he learned a whole lot from watching Laura Bailey performances on Funimation shows as well. Oh, and uh, on the... On the Yu Yu Hakusho Dark Tournament clip they showed, Justin mentioned, like, Hiei's expression encapsulates cringe upon watching Yusuke and Kuwabara kind of fight each other. So that was pretty funny. And then they were asked, like, if they were shocked uh, that Kuwabara was alive in the Dark Tournament arc. And Justin was like, no, because I'd already watched the show uh, because of 
binging it. Like, I didn't really have a time to, like, sit down and, you know, process it. I was just watching next episode. And Chris, they had to let him know from the start that he was going to be faking it so he could take that account while he was giving the performance. And uh, there was a great moment where it's like, uh, Chris Sabat was like, man, it's so great we played these because I'm like, I'm, I haven't seen this since we recorded this show. I'm sure the audience hasn't seen this in a long time. And Justin was like, they were binging this show for the 40th time, you know, <laughs> which not wrong, not wrong. And then they were asked, uh, Willen that defines the show. And Justin was like, since we, because he was like, when the original spirit detectives was like kind of working towards that reveal. And Chris was trying to figure out the name of a, quote unquote clown looking dude uh which gave him nightmares which was of course the beautiful Suzuka and Justin joke never pronounce his name without using beautiful. Then they mentioned their personal favorite moment. Justin was like the moment after they beat Doctor and there was a conversation between nine and ten different characters in the scene and he loved how all the lines play off each other and Chris loved the very, very beginning, which what he thought was one of the most memorable scenes. And it felt like a cool, different voice in terms of the tone of the show than what he had been doing before. And Justin mentioned that they recorded episode eight, six different ways or different scripts and voice actors. And there was a lot of attention to the dub by the producers. And everyone was very invested in the show's success. And then the last words for fans was that Chris basically said, thank you for uh, coming to the panel. See you all tomorrow when our swords get longer. So ended on a really fun joke there. But yeah, it was a really fun panel. You could really tell that they love the show. Justin Cook especially has so much love for this show. So... I'm really looking forward to seeing the cast reunite for these OVAs and looking forward to when they come out. What do you think of the, the panel overall, B-Lord? I really loved it. It was just a really great, like, homage to, like, Yu Yu Hakusho in general. And you can just tell how much uh, Sabat and uh, Justin Cook really loved working on the series. So it was just really fun to just, like, hear their thoughts on, like, working on it. And just, like, also, like, uh, kind of their reactions to the clips, too. Like, the like the Kuwabara clip that they showed is, I think, one of my favorite clips in the entire series. <laughs> so, like, I, I, when they immediately showed that, I'm just like, yes, <laughs> yes, that's the clip you show for Kuwabara. That's the definitive clip. Yeah, especially because it's a montage of Kuwabara and Yusuke moments. Like, it's perfect for, like, a retrospective panel. And for a panel reflecting on the performances Sabat and Justin Cook did specifically. But that wasn't our final panel of the day. We stayed in that very same room, 1A06, for the following panel, Shudder's Creepshow. Which was basically just a screening of the second episode of the series, which they also released on Shudder the same day. But as people who don't have Shudder, it was a fun watch. Very interesting stories. First story was set in World War II. A bunch of American soldiers come across like this abandoned police station where this woman 
has been chained up in the cell. Uh, there's a lot of dead bodies. Slowly they realize the woman is actually a werewolf and she wants to die. But they get surrounded by a bunch of Nazis, so they make a deal with this werewolf woman is that they give her a cross, which she eats so she'll die. But before she dies, she bites all the soldiers, so they turn into werewolves. And then when the Nazis come in to kill them, they've transformed into werewolves, and then they kill the Nazis, and then they kill a traitor who ran away and abandoned them. So that was a fun story. And the second story was really, really interesting about this guy who is kind of a sociopath who likes to collect weird things. He finds this, like, weird finger and tries to figure out what it is, but he feeds it liquids, and so it grows into this monster creature called Bob who goes out and kills people that this guy doesn't like, including his ex-wife and then later ex-kids, and he just... And because he can't just throw them away normally because Bob will just fetch them and bring it back to him. He has to, like, mush them up and drain them down the gutter of his sink. So, it basically all culminates in the murder of his stepkids, and he gets arrested because he very messily has to dispose of those bodies, and then he gets thrown in a psych ward in jail, I think, and it basically ends, like, you know, has there ever been anyone that annoyed you? Wouldn't you just like to see retribution from them? And, you know, Bob is coming for me. He loves me. And then you just hear the screeches of Bob outside the door while he looks at the camera. So it really plays with the idea, of, you know, is Bob in his mind? Is he real? And it was just kind of like a fun, kind of unsettling story. None of these were scary stories, but they play on horror ideas. And they were fun to watch. So as people who don't have Shudder, it was really neat to get a chance to check out this show. Don't know if I will get Shudder just to watch the show, but it was, it was a cool preview. And I also really appreciate the comic booky aesthetic of like introducing the segments and stuff. That was also really neat. I mean, I had never really heard of this show before the screening. So like, it actually kind of interested me in watching more. Like it, Seems like it has like a pretty fun, like kind of like horror thriller aesthetic to it. Mm-hmm. And that basically did it for our New York Comic Con Thursday. We just went back to our hotel and grabbed some walk to walk, which was something I also had not had in a long time. It was good Chinese ish food that was basically you take a bunch of different ingredients that you can choose, and you have a grain base, and you mix them all up. Really nice stuff. But there was another big event that happened on that Thursday, which was the Harvey Awards. We, of course, were not able to go because that's an invite-only affair, but we should mention it just because My Hero Academia did win the Best Manga Award at the Harvey's. So that was pretty cool. It went up against Frankenstein, Jiji Ito Story Collection, Mob Psycho 1. 100, Our Dreams of Dusk, and Witch Hat Atelier. So that was pretty neat that it went out there. But let's head on into Friday. Friday, Friday, gotta get down on Friday. And we started on Friday with the Shonen Jump panel. 
hosted by Uriah Brown and also David Brothers and Marlene First. Cool collection of people there and tons and tons of announcements. Isn't that true, V-Lord? Yes, so many announcements. Where do we even begin? Well, I guess the first thing they announced was anime-related stuff, so let's just get right to it. Golden Wind, the fifth part of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, is coming to the Nami on October 26th. Yeah, I mean, like, it was kind of funny during the panel, because, like, they were showing a trailer for One Punch Man Season 2, and it kind of glitched out, and suddenly the slide just skipped to the next right, one, where yeah. I have the tsunami announcement. Yeah, that that was pretty funny. That's true, they kind of didn't get the chance to build up the JoJo reveal. It was like, mishap with the trailer forced them to reveal the slide, and they just had to roll with it. But yeah, they show the clip where Bucciletti confronts Giorno, and does the infamous lick, taste of a liar scene. Ray Chase is awesome as Lucciarati. Philip Reach sounds great as Giovanna. We got basically the full cast list for Team Lucciarati. They all seem like great fits, so definitely excited to rewatch Golden Wind dubbed on Toonami. They also followed up uh, on the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure film by Takashi Miike, and they will indeed be releasing that on Blu-ray this February, February 11th, I believe. I think originally they said that they would do theatrical streams for this, but I guess they changed their mind. So it's going to be only coming to Blu-ray, it seems. But and I'm looking forward to checking out the movie when it does release on home video. But then, then they had some novel announcements. And basically, all the big three you know and love, they've got some novels coming out for all of them. We've got Naruto Story, uh, Family Day, by Mirei Miyamoto. And we've got Bleach Can't Fear On World, written by the creator of Bakano and Dorara themselves, Ryoko Narada. And we've got Sho Hinata's One Piece Ace's Story novel. And basically, do we want to go into the summaries of like what all these are about? Basically, Bleach Can't Fear Your Own World is set after the Thousand Year Blood War. And it's basically about Shuhei Asagi, you know, knight, the company, assistant captain, the guy with the 69 on his face. And he basically has to go against a guy who has a grand plan to make a new Soul King. So I guess Shuhei Asagi, if you weren't satisfied with him in the final arc, he's going to have a whole novel where he gets to be the hero. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, Mirai Mormon. Uh, the we got is here. What has Asagi really done anything like, important? Uh, he killed Tozen, technically. Since then, like... <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, from killing Kozen to the end of the series, that's like... even Okay, even in that fight, he only is there in the end. Like, the other guy did most of the Kurama? work. I mean, no, he was still... I think he was present throughout that fight. Was he? I think so. It's been a while. I mean, before that, of course, he had his own fight earlier against, like, some of the random... 
orang cars that was like one of Bargon's subordinates, whatever. You know, that series of fights with the pillars that didn't matter at all. So, anyway, Shohei Asagi, a popular character. Ryoko Naruto, I think, the reason to read this. I'm interested to see yeah, what the I character mean, anything Naruto writes is gold. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll be probably reading this for sure when it comes out. Yeah. So, the next uh, book, Mie Murimoto's Naruto Story Family Day, that's a, about a couple of different stories set in Konohagare during the family day holiday. So there's one story in which Naruto and Himawari race to around to look for like a stuffed animal, Kurama, that keeps eluding them. There's another story about Hinata uh, wanting to make the day memorable for her father. And then there's a story about Sasuke who wants to do something special with Sarada and Sakura. So... Most of these stories were adapted into the anime, except for the one with Hinata trying to, you know, hang out with her dad, which was kind of one of the ones I was really interested in. But the Naruto and Himawari one, the Sasuke and Sarada one, those were adapted into the anime already. So you can actually check those out in, like, episode 94 or 96 or whatever. But, yeah, the the novel that those episodes are based on, those are coming out soon, too. So uh, I'll be interested to pick that up to read the one story that they didn't adapt into the anime. And then Ace's story is actually the first of two Ace novels. Stephen Paul actually revealed on the latest One Piece podcast that they are working on both of the Ace novels, but they will be releasing them separately. And at the panel themselves, they only release the release date for this first one. Uh, written by Shohinata. They haven't mentioned the release date of the second one just yet. But both are being worked on by Stephen Paul, according to the latest One Piece podcast. But basically, yeah, these is a story about the original story of Luffy's adopted butter ace. A bunch of backstory stuff we probably didn't get in the manga itself. So, the Bleach novel is going to come out July 2020. The Naruto novel will come out on June 2020. And Ace of Story is coming out in May 2020. But there were some other exciting news about manga releases that are forthcoming by Wiz. Namely, I think that this is the one we're most excited about, you and me, V-Lord. Actage is coming. Actage volumes are coming in July 2020. Uh, also, Ruby Wait, D we know it's July 2020? I thought we just knew it was summer 2020. Well, according to Wiz's tweet and this press release I'm reading, it's July 2020. So, oh there my. we go. Also, Ruby, the official manga, first volume is coming on July 2022. And, uh, Spy... You <laughs> <laughs> said that so quickly. I mean, what is there to say about Ruby, the official manga? It's common. <laughs> but anyway... Yeah, Act A drawings from the coming out. Hopefully they come out by monthly schedule. We get that gap closed quickly. Actually, interesting thing happened while we were at New York Comic Con is that uh, the chapters for the next volume of Demon Slayer went up early in the Shonen Jump Vault before the volume has even released. So, will that trend continue? Will they release these chapters even faster than the volume releases and get 
the gaps filled even quicker? Will they not just do this with Demon Slayer, but with Actage and Jujutsu Kaisen 2? Remains to be seen. Here's hoping. We don't have to just wait for the volumes to come out to get those backlog chapters filled. But volumes for Actage are coming next July. Super excited about that. But also... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know I'm hyped for it, and uh I will be super into buying those when they come out. Definitely. Like I when when they made the announcement of the panel, I was I was uh wooting and a hollering like a fanboy. So <laughs> And also uh one thing I wanna note there at this panel is that they didn't actually mention the release dates or the fact that these were actually License when it comes to this and some of the other stuff we'll talk about in just a minute. They just talked about them and the premise of the series, but they didn't actually mention, oh, we're actually bringing this out in print next year, and this is when. You know, they they only did that it on the Twitter. It was kind of implied from the fact that they were showing volume covers and stuff. Yeah, but, like, but that... It wasn't them being like, hey, this is a volume release, and it's coming out in this time window. They didn't explicitly say it. You couldn't just that, oh, they're releasing volumes just for them showing the Japanese volume cover. So, you know, yeah. I was confused. I mean, when, so, like, when they show the Actage one, at first it was a con. Is this... Are they saying that this is a volume release? And when then I realized, like, yeah, they had previously mentioned this is all new release announcements. And it's not like they're doing it like... Some other way, so it kind of has to be the volume. I thought they were just talking about these in the context of new series that were coming out, because as we'll talk about in a moment, you know, other thing, who things they mentioned were new series. Yeah, but Actage has been out for a while, so like that—that that was kind of my logic there. Still, like, something that's growing in popularity and relatively new. But the main point I'm trying to make is that they didn't really make it clear that these were license announcements that they were going to be releasing these volumes. They did, definitely did not give dates during the panel themselves. You had to go to Twitter to find out that information. But, yeah, to just move on, they also mentioned Spy Family is going to get print volumes starting in June 2020, and Samurai 8 is going to start coming out in March 2020, and Spy Family is really exciting. Makes sense, because Spy Family is doing super, super successfully not just in terms of online views, but uh, the volume sales come out in Japan, and it's doing pretty well in terms of sales. It's outselling in its first week with just two volume series with tons more volumes than that. So, huge, huge hit. But uh, Samurai 8, not a huge hit, uh, according to recent reports. Yeah, it's uh, it's about selling as well as Black Clover Quarter Nights. Which, that one spin-off and jump, jump plus. Yeah, it's, uh, I've only sold 12,000 copies for the first volume and 11,000 copies for the second volume in the first weekend. So. That's not good. Especially considering this is the follow-up series to Masashi Kishimoto, creator of Naruto. Not very promising results. So Meanwhile, you have Spy Family doing gangbusters of over 100k. Spy Family <laughs> has literally sold five times as many volumes in the same amount of time. <laughs> it's kind of insane when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Samurai 8, 
you know, Wiz made this license announcement before they got the reports from Oricon in Japan, before, you know, we even knew how Samurai 8 was going to sell. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, it's Masashi Kijimoto, Creative Naruto, so I'm sure Western fans I will pick it up still. like people will pick it up because it's Kishimoto. Yeah. Like, the Japanese reception's one thing, but I feel like there are enough English, like, readers who will just pick it up off of, like, name recognition alone. I think so, too. I do wonder, with Samurai 8's current success level, if it will stick around for the long haul, or if they will try to have Kishimoto retire the series so he can work on a potentially bigger hit. So we'll see how yeah, long it, it continues. There are series doing worse than it, like, you know, Beast Children, Shinobi Squad, and Double Taize, so it's not, like, going to be immediately on the chopping block, but early reports are in that. Yozakura family, in terms of popularity, is doing pretty well, so it's not a big hit, so we'll see what's going to happen with Samurai 8. Yeah, it's it's tough to say what's going to happen with Samurai 8, because, like, Regardless of sales, Kishimoto spent a lot of time developing the series. I don't feel like Shueisha will want to, like, just cancel it so quickly because of how much promotion and time investment went into it. Yeah. Like, I I feel like it's going to last a while regardless, like, and, like, in hopes of, like, sales increasing. But who knows? Yeah, I think it'll last at least a, a year. I think it'd be funny if Samurai 8 got eight volumes. It ended with eight <laughs> volumes. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see how long it lasts. Maybe it'll pick up. It'll attract more readers. But generally it seems that fans vote on the Western side and on Japan are not too enthused. Theastic about it. I want to pull uh, ourselves back a little bit to kind of mention some things we were talking about before the license announcement. Mainly on the Dr. Stone announcement, you know, they mentioned that Boichi and Agaki are coming to Anime NYC. And they really praised Boichi as an artist on the panel. Orion called him a god-tier artist, one of the best comic artists in the world. So that was pretty cool. I don't remember the context for this, but there was a really funny exchange where Orion asked, is Sasuke happy? And Marlene was like, no, but that's what makes him so perfect. Which I thought was very funny. And then uh, after they talked about these license announcements, they talked about the Shonen Jump Vault, and David made a really great quote is that uh, if the print Shonen Jump was like Kaioken times 10, then the Shonen Jump Vault is like Super Saiyan God Super Saiyan, which was a really great comment. And they do this game called Panic at the Panel towards the end of the, the panel. They basically ask a bunch of volunteers trivia questions, like a rapid fire of 10 trivia questions. And so the first person was asked a really fun and tough Sandland question at the, at the panel, where they were asked, what was the name of the burr Sheriff Rao described in the first chapter of the series? Which even I didn't remember off the top of my head. The volunteer mentioned like, uh, Vulture Hawk, which is completely off the mark, because the bird Rao mentioned was the waterfish. And the significance of that was that the waterfish was migrating north to find 
water. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I, I was reading Sandland just like a few weeks ago. So I was like, huh, I, I should know this, but like I, I couldn't like figure it out off the top of my head when like Ryan asked that question. Yeah, but I, I that was a pleasant surprise to see uh, all these series get brought up in this trivia game. So that yeah. was a lot. Of fun. I mean, when he does the trivia game, he always intentionally has the last question be like something crazy obscure that you're not supposed to get. Yeah, so that thought was a lot of fun. I kind of want to see someone actually answer it correctly. Yeah, yeah. Someone who really knows their stuff in terms of old school shouldn't jump things to. Love to see someone like Maxi maybe play the game one time. But yeah, always super fun to be at the Shonen Jump panel. Sadly, Veronica Taylor had a panel like that started right after this. And I tried to rush out the door immediately after the panel ended to head to the room where it was at, but completely full, no entry. Alas, did not get to attend the Ronald Taylor panel. But hopefully on Anime NYC, I will get to meet with some really cool Pokemon voice actors. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that for sure. But after that, we had our separate goings of ways. I mean, we went out of the Clinton Center to get lunch at a pizza place, which was more pricey than it needed to be. We could have easily found cheaper pizza. But then we went to separate panels. Before that, though, I guess, since you're a Tanami guy, Vilar, let's just talk about the, the Tanami schedule, I guess. Because they also mentioned over the weekend, like, the new lineup that's coming, when things will be premiering. One Punch Man's getting 11.30 p.m., and Demon Slayer's getting 1.30 p.m., Dragon Ball Super is doing some reruns for a couple weeks. We found out a little bit later that it's restarted only at 128, so only be planned for four more weeks. Curiously, time to end when the MHA reruns are. How do you feel about the schedule? It's fine. It's not like... I don't really have any, like, big problems with it, because I'm gonna just watch it anyways. <laughs> but, like, I guess, like, I know a lot of people are kind of upset that Demon Slayer is kind of low. And I, I guess, like, the big thing there is that I guess Food Wars is doing really well right now, so they don't really want to move it, because it's already going to be there for a long time. And Demon Slayer just kind of falls into that time slot because of, like, where everything else is. Yeah. Hey, whatever. Dr. Soda's also doing really well, so it makes sense that that's where it is. Yeah, you you don't want to change what's working. Mm -hmm. So, hey... If Demon Slayer does crazy gangbusters and saves anime, then uh, it'll, it'll move up. That is true. But now let's talk about the panels that we attended separately. But before we do that, I guess we'll mention a panel and some licenses that we were not at, but we should mention anyway. Uh, Tokyo Pop made some license announcements on its New York Comic Con panel. Not on Friday, oh, Tokyo Pop. but on Thursday, it had licensed a few series. The Gentle Nobles Vacation Recommendation, The Fox and the Little Tanuki, Love Stories, and The Apple, The Rose, and The Vampire Manga. And they also mentioned that they're going to be offering new collector's editions for Arya the Masterpiece, Tarot Cafe, Bienzengas, Dark Metro, and Grimm's Manga Tales. So they didn't hmm. mention any release dates, I think, for any of their new licenses. Yeah. I mean, like, you can find them out there. Like, I think the Aria release date's, like, January or something. 
Sure, but I think the the new licenses, I don't think we really know when their yeah, stuff is coming. Th- those are a mystery. Mm-hmm. But hey, I guess Tokyo Pop is still in the game somehow. Yeah, people were had mixed feelings about Fox and Little Tanuki in particular, because they... A lot of people really like and are interested in the series. They don't necessarily want to support Tokyo Pop, but they're going to keep an eye out to see how this release turns out because apparently, you know, this series has really intrigued them. It's about gods who granted animals a few great powers. Not all the animals used these powers for good. The fox spirit in particular grew brash and arrogant and abused his friend until he was imprisoned for bad behavior, but he was released 300 years later. But he's not allowed to use his powers until he helps the Tanuki cub become an assistant to the gods. And so now the fox spirit must figure out how to be a great babysitter to this mischievous Tanuki or risk not having his powers forever. So people are really looking forward to that one. A gentle noble vacation recommendation is about a guy who finds himself in a city that's similar to his own but clearly isn't. But then he realizes he's actually in an entirely different world, but he doesn't panic. He just decides to learn about this strange place and hires a seasoned adventurer to be his tour guide and protector. And then he decides to become a member of a guild and become an adventurer himself. So another fun series there. Then we've got Love Stories, which is a BL manga that people are also having feelings towards because they're excited about it, but they don't really know if they want to support Tokyo Pop, but it's basically a guy who overhears his classmate confessing to another friend that he's gay, his perspective shits, and he sees his friend in a new light, he tries not to let prejudice color this view, but he overthinks his classmates' interactions now, and he notices the way he looks at another boy, his own best friend, and even though he doesn't want to get involved, he can't help it. And he draws him closer to the, the kid. And then at first he thinks his empathy, knowing that the boy that this guy Yamato has set his sights on is definitely straight and has no idea. But then as he grows a friendship with Yamato, the two of them grow closer to his mutual study group. And he actually really begins to care about him, regardless of his sexuality, maybe even deeper feelings there. So, BL title that's got people intrigued, but still, of course, Tokyo Pop Cautious. And then finally, Apple, the Rose and the Vampire. About a vampire enthusiast stumbles upon a beautiful, mysterious vampire, but becomes disappointed when he's not really like the villains in her stories, not very seductive or manipulative. What looks win first place, but he's a space case, so she downgrades this vampire into a beta vampire and begins a long, long journey to educate him in the ways of the undead. So this sounds like a fun one. These all sound like good licenses, but they're from Tokyo Pop, so we have to wait and see whether we can trust these releases in terms of quality. Yeah. I've been wondering if I should uh, get in contact them, with them at some point, because even at, like, uh, New York Comic Con, they were, like, definitely trying to sell their stuff to people and like be like, hey, we, we're doing manga again. We swear it's good. I mean, if they give us review copies, we'll review them for sure. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, if I see them around a convention, I might talk to them because I think, yeah, I, I'm willing to give them another chance. I don't completely 
trust them per se because everyone knows the horrors of what they did back in the day. The shadiness of their exploitative practice of their OEL artists. Yeah, and almost killing the manga market in the U.S. They're oversaturating it. Yeah, but uh, hey, times are different. People change. Maybe they're a better company now. Maybe. We'll see. But as far as a company we could trust that has been doing great work, let's talk about the Kodansha USA slash Vertical panel. So they started off the panel and they gave up some free samplers, Akino's Journey among um, sampler for the Vertical side and the Kodansha Comics 2019-2020 sampler for the Kodansha side. The panelists for this panel were Ben Applegate, Misaki Kido, Tomotran, and special guest from Japan, Hidemi Shiraki, who is uh, editor uh, responsible for a new license they talked about later in the panel called The uh, Witch and the Beast. Uh, he's an editor at Young Magazine. He's also worked in some other popular titles like Starving Anonymous, Kill the Rose, and Sacrificial Woke. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. So let's talk about what they started off the panel talking about, which was some Nizio Eason stuff. They revealed the Katana Gatari Volume 3. He talked about Monogatari Season 2 box set, which will have new exclusive art from Vofan. It'll go on sale on December 17th. I've already pre-ordered that. Really? Okay. Uh, then they mentioned Vofan's going to be at Anime NYC and that uh, pre-orders for Color for Dreams. If you pre-order it through the Anime NYC website, it's going to come with a pin. That hasn't started yet, but what has started yet is yeah. a Monogatari cosplay and fan art contest that we judged at Enemy NYC. It started that day of that panel, and there are more details on Contentious USA's website and stuff, but basically, you know, make your original Monogatari-inspired cosplay and fan art, and you can get judged in this contest and win prizes, I think. And then they mentioned their goodies for this year's Halloween Comic Fest, which is on October 26th at any participating comic book shops. The Bakemono Gatari sampler that you can pick up. Uh, we kind of have the first volume already, but yeah, you can pick up a, a sampler that first volume. They also have uh, exclusive artwork, uh, tribute art by Nanashi, creator of Doing Toy With Me, Miss Nagatoro, included with that sampler. And on the other side, the Kadansha side, they got a Tales of Basuria manga sampler. Uh, also has some fake Grand Order manga samples and Grand Blue samples as well. Then they talked about the current Right Stuff promotion for the month, which was Ghost in the Shell. So sales and Ghost in the Shell across a bunch of different platforms, including Right Stuff. If you are on Right Stuff, you get, that's where you get the button, uh, the exclusive button. And this is special and significant because Ghost in the Shell was one of Kodansha USA's launch titles 10 years ago. Uh, their 10th anniversary is October 13, 2019, so that's pretty cool. Then they mentioned that Clamp will be the November spotlight, and that month there's also going to be a special survey to win a massive library of uh, Clamp titles, which includes the hardcover, card captor, and Rayard box set. Then they announced some new licenses, some new digital first announcements, starting off with a M-rated Jose manga called My Boss's Kitten, 
which is by Yumi Hisawa, and it's basically about an OL who moves in with her sadistic boss who is into cats, and the first volume of this comes out on October 15th. Then next up, they got 11.22 for um, Happy Marriage, which is going to come out on October 22nd. The series is by Pika Watanabe, and it's about a husband and wife who have been married for seven years. But they get along well, but they're sexless, and they don't have children, and so they decide to see other people. The husband has an affair with another woman, and the wife is aware with it. But seeing him in a state of bliss with the person he's cheating on her on, you know, she also begins to change. So it's a story of lies and truth, whether or not you even want to be married... The real life of a 30-something couple, which will give you some second thoughts about that institution we call marriage. So, perhaps an anti-marriage manga, manga that's rethinking what love looks like in the modern days and conventional gendered expectations. So, could be potentially very, very interesting. Again, the series comes out on 10-22. The next license they mentioned was I, Okawe's Guilty which is potentially an NTR soap opera type manga about a mid-30s housewife who has a good husband, but after 10 years of marriage, you know, her husband hasn't been able to really figure out she wants to have a kid. But then she's at a bar with a younger friend of hers called Rui, who she is really comfortable around, but she has a secret that she's harboring about him probably some secret uh, desires. So that's coming out on October 29th. And then the last of these digital first licenses we mentioned was Our Fake Marriage, which is very unlike the previous licenses because this one is actually a comedy about a girl who at age of 29 runs away from home or rather loses her home but runs into a childhood friend who proposes that she live with him in a high-rise condominium acting as his face spouse and it's a tale of this seat involving a handsome architect so this one unlike the other ones is supposed to be more light-hearted and humorous but also probably pokes fun at the idea of marriage and points out that it might not be necessarily the ideal path in life for some people. But, yeah, those are all the digital first licenses for Gnansha in the next month. Uh, very unified by an interesting team of adult women getting into kind of steamy affairs with other people, potentially not very healthy relationships that they're having with other people. But there's an audience and there's value in having these M-rated Jose titles. So very, very cool licenses. And we'll see how people respond to them when they come out. But the big announcement I think they want to make and that they did make at the Comic-Con panel was that they're publishing Witch and the Beast in print in 2020. And Witch and the Beast comes from Kosuke Satake and it's about a group of two people, like a soft-spoken man named Asaf, who has delicate features and a coffin strapped to his back, and an entourage of black crows, and Guido, a feral wilding girl with long fans in the eyes of beasts. And so this ominous pair one day appear in a town to a troll witch, who is a ruler with magic coursing through her tattooed body. 
and who has convinced the townsfolk that she's their hero, but Asaf and Godot know better, and they live by one creed. Wherever a witch goes, only curses and disasters follow. And so they've got stores together, they won't hesitate to remove anyone in their name, be it mob or army garrison. And so it's a suave and explosive manga with a story of vengeance set in a stylish art deco urban wonderland that's one part FMA and one part cowboy bebop. Would you believe, Lee Lord, that apparently this series was originally going to be set in a school? It was going to be a school comedy instead of a fantasy of us beating up teachers? That would be very different. Yeah, very radical change. And what was really cool about this panel uh, was that they showed original storyboard drafts for this first chapter uh, at the panel. And there were some really crazy draft-to-final uh, changes that were happening that we saw that was really, really cool. I love seeing rough concept art and seeing how things change from the original concept to the final. One of the big ones was a scene where a beast appears, and originally it's like a traditional fantasy beast, but in the final version, it's like this giant floating shark, like something out of Junji Ito's Gyo. So, really, really cool stuff. There was a great moment where we saw a really rough page where very simple doodles of two people talking are shown, and then asked Hideki, how do you tell what's going on in a page like this? And Hideki was like, I try my best. So... Really, really fun insight into the editorial process, into the draft and storyboarding process before uh, completing a chapter in the in the final stage. So love, love, love seeing process work like this. Really, really fun panel. Uh, it ended with a series of Q and A's, and you know I immediately thought of a question. I mean, I didn't immediately go up to the line. But I kind of sat and wrote down my question and then headed up to the line. I'm so glad I timed it out just right so that I was like the last person they called on because just a, maybe a minute later and I probably wouldn't have gotten to ask my question. But the question I asked was basically whether Kadash Commons would consider doing a digital subscription service a la what Wiz is doing with Shonen Jump. And they basically said that they definitely think that's the future of readership and ter- like digital subscriptions for comics, but they think that they would need to team up with another publisher in order to provide a better catalog of titles uh, before launching something like that. So they don't have immediate uh, plans they can save or anything, but they definitely are thinking about it. It's definitely something on their mind. So really nice response. Was very kindly allowed to take two pins for my question. They were giving out some of those free pins they've been getting out all year with, you know, their uh, pre-orders on right stuff uh, for their 10th anniversary special. So I actually got the Battle Angel and the Asylum Voice pins, which was really neat. And then after the panel, I had a really awesome conversation with the Black Manga Critic who was also at the panel. I was actually sitting just a few rows in front of him and I noticed him. So, you know, we struck up a conversation. I mentioned how much I love his work and his videos. And we talked about Spy Family a little bit, Actage for a little bit. We took a picture. Really, really great conversation. An awesome thing to meet him. And, you know, we made plans to meet up on Sunday, but I those didn't end up working out. But hopefully uh, we encounter him again in a future con and we get to hang out more. So it was really awesome to just meet him and hang out for just a little bit there after the panel. 
But yeah, while I was at the Kodansha panel, you, we Lord, were at the Crunchyroll panel at the behest of Tanami Faithful. So how did that go? It was not amazing. It was, like, pretty average. So, like, obviously Crunchyroll has Anime NYC coming up, so they're not going to really announce anything here. Like, that, that would just be dumb. Right. But they did have a few, like, small things. Like, they announced the day that the... Uh, Food Wars Season 4 and Shafaru Season 3 are gonna be streaming. Uh, they promoted, uh, didn't I say to make my abilities average of the next life? And, like, it was basically them just showcasing, like, hey, this is everything we're simulcasting this season. I think they mentioned Black Fox was gonna be streaming that day, finally. Yeah, which we already knew, though, oh, so. Okay. Yeah, so, like, uh, it, nothing really interesting came out of the panel, except for, one big thing that was in there was that Konosuba is, uh, the pre-orders for the movie are doing so well that they're adding a second day worth of showings. Mm-hmm. So that, that was really cool to hear. Um, so the other set of showings I think are on November 14th, so that's like a Thursday. So if you're busy on a Tuesday and can't make it to the initial set of screenings, you can go to that section. Yeah. So I think we are still going to see the show at the same showtime we decided to. Yeah, because we're going to be flying out to New York again. And we could see it in New York, but that would get a little too busy, I think. I I don't want to crunch time. Yeah. So it might be fun to see it with other people, but... Yeah, we can see. It'll be busy. But yeah, that was the Crunchyroll panel, I suppose, and then... While you were finishing up that, and I guess in the kind of downtime before we had to leave for Hammerstein again to attend the Adult Swim panels, I explored Artist Alley. And I basically walked around, and Artist Alley, they gave it a huge space. I remember in previous years, it was like on the top floor and just like this small kind of annex. But now it just took up an entire hall, hall B, the entirety of hall B. So a lot of space, a lot of room for people to walk around. And, you know, there was a lot of cool art there, but it was definitely more focused on Western media. They have, like, comic book artists, uh, mainly super hero book artists. So there were a lot of big names there, like Chris Claremont and stuff. So it was, it was cool to see their art and stuff. I remember actually... Uh, one anecdote that we forgot to mention on our first day is that we actually accidentally got in line for the Mark Wald Artist Alley boot instead of the Sean Shemmel and Chris Abbott panel. Wait, that's what that line was for? Yeah. It was for uh, his boot at uh, Artist Alley. So we actually got in that line instead of the, the actual line for Sabat and Shemmel. So that was kind of funny, but a good learning thing that, oh, the entrance to 1806 is over here, not here. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Artist Alley was cool, but nothing struck my eye in terms of stuff that I needed to get, mainly because my self-imposed girl that I'm only going to buy from places that have Rumiko Takahashi-related art. And there was none of that that I saw, which was saddening, but probably good for my wallet, and I'm sure Anime NYC will prove otherwise and give me some things to really enjoy uh, and purchase. But there was a lot of awesome artists there and really cool art that was really nice to walk around and look to. 
What do you think of Artist Alley that you perused through it? I went through a little bit. There was some really cool art in there. Nothing that I really wanted to buy, though. So mm. that was uh, kind of not really disappointing, but, like, I guess kind of just like, okay. Like, I, I'm sure there's going to be some stuff more, like, anime NYC that I'd be more interested in picking up. Mm-hmm. But, like, in general, I don't pick up that much, like, art nowadays anyways. Yeah. But before we go into the Adult Swim panels, do we want to mention the Wiz Media panels they made at their general Wiz Media panel at the same time? Because, unfortunately... Oh, yes, of course, because I kind of am disappointed that we got to miss that, because it was kind of a bombshell of announcements. It was. It was a lot of really big announcements that they made. Some big licenses. They licensed like 50 new things that they announced during this panel. Like six manga licenses uh, alone and, th- and then alongside some other things. So first off, let's just go through the list here. They're bringing out more Fushigi Yugi, Fushigi Yugi, Miyako Senki. The last of the Fushigi Yugi sequel manga spin-off manga, uh, though it's going to come out in August 2020, and it's going to be about the Biako priestess. It's set in 1923. Uh, the priestess's father, Takao, war- warns her to stay away from the Universe for God's book, saying the book only Mangadach. But Takao worked with the late Inosuke Okuru translated his text, and he knows that in order to enact its story, the book needs one last heroine, the priestess Biako, so she becomes the Biako heroine. So, for fans of Yugi, another story set in the universe is coming real soon. The next license is How Do We Relationship by Tommy Full, coming in June 2020, which is a romantic convenience between two college women, which re- soon becomes the real thing. So, looks like a really cute Yuri manga with adult protagonists, which is always really nice to see. Next is a Pretty huge one. <laughs> one that's, of course, very relevant to me as the resident Rumiko Takahashi fan. And that's My Koku is finally being re-released in a collector's edition. That's right, the classic by Rumiko Takahashi is coming out again in June 2020. Of course, this is a story about uh, college flunky Yusaku Gudai trying to study to retake his entrance exams, living in a dilapidated, noisy apartment complex, and he becomes smitten with the new manager that moves in to clean up the place, and a love story forms from there. So, yeah, this is a classic. This is one of my favorites, one of Wee Lord's favorites. Some people consider it Rumukutakashi's best. I love Yurisatsura more, but this definitely is an incredible work of hers, an incredible, powerful, moving story. So many people were so excited that this was coming out again. This is going to be edited by Nancy Tissel Chue, who, uh, you know, is also Shoujo Beat, like, managing editor, but this is a series very near and dear to her. So super excited that it's going to be handled by people who really, really are passionate and love the series. And, yeah, with this, there's going to be, like, three Rumiko Takahashi manga that are going to be coming out concurrently by Viz next year. Which is kind of insane. And it's really awesome. And with this re-release, all of Rumiko Takahashi's major series will be available in print once again, which is a really awesome thing. 
Hopefully this also gets a digital release, because... Yeah, like you are saying. I think that, that'll also help with, like, I guess the longevity of it being around here. Because the weird thing I've noticed with Takahashi Works is, aside from uh, Urusei Yatsura, none of them are available digitally, which is really weird. Yeah, I think they need to work out some rights issue with that. We'll see. But hopefully, yeah. Ikoku will be made digitally, and I think this is a good sign that Urusei Yatsura is actually doing quite well, too. So, things are looking great. For Rumiko Takahashi fans, Mao in Japan is also selling real well, according to Sakaki. So here's hoping that Mao will be a success when it comes over here. Viz, license Mao right now. We need four Takahashi manga next year. Yeah, yeah, we eating. We'll make it work. No one's buying Renee. <laughs> oh no, I'm buying Renee. But yeah, we eating. We eating Takahashi fans. We're living in the Rumik world. It's the dream. But speaking of dreams, Mujirushi, The Sign of Dreams by Naoki Urasawa is coming in July 2020. This is a one-volume series about a painting that will fix some guy's broken marriage if a young girl and her dad can seal it, but it kind of goes into a lot of crazy directions that are somehow involved in a scheme to masturbate mask of a controversial American presidential candidate, Beverly Duncan, and then a lackluster election kills their sales potential, burying uh, the father under a mountain of mass and death. And so on the words of despair, Komodo's, uh, the father discovers a sign that leads him to the director, an art fanatic who vows he can make all of Komoda and Kazumi uh, his daughter's dreams come true. It's totally not a Yami, guys. <laughs> it's, it's not a Yami. Yes. He doesn't say Shay. So this is actually... It's an Ozumatsu-san spin-off manga drawn by No Kurosawa. Like, Yami's isn't necessarily the main character, but he's, like, a major character in it. So it's it's kind of a fun crossover. Naoki Urasawa playing with the world of Ozumatsu-san, playing with the character of Yami. So, a lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, this is also, like, a collaboration that Urasawa did for the Louvre. So, like, you, you get to see a lot of uh, love for the Louvre. Yeah, also a part of that ongoing series of projects, the Louvre does to manga actors, you know, to make manga yeah. set at the Louvre. Like, uh, just this year, we got, uh, Cats of the Louvre by, uh, Taya Matsumoto, oh, which I just finished reading, and it's amazing. Yeah. And so, this is another great work in that same sort of genre premise, so. Really looking forward to reading this, uh, with the official translation, and, yeah, this is gonna be a great read for Ursaw fans. Now, Viz, where's Asadora? Give us Asadora right now! A fun thing is that, I guess, with this, that kind of spells the idea that we can't publish two Urasawa things at the same time, so maybe Yeah, but we can I guess, like, 20th Asadora. Century Boys is, like, a re-release, though. Yeah, but people still thought that was the reason we couldn't get Asadora or something else. By but, but we had Master Keaton and uh, Monster at the same time. Monster at the same time. Oh, yeah. So, who knows then? But, yeah, maybe after this comes out, we will get Asadora. Who knows? And maybe Billy Bat? So, someone license it. Someone needs Bat. to license it. This probably can't because it's Kodansha, yeah. but Seven Seas. Go license Billy Bat, please. We'll buy 50 copies. Yeah. But 
The next license was something I'm also really intrigued by, which is Not Your Idol, original Japanese title Sayonara Miniskirt. And that's by Aoi Makino, coming out May 2020. It's a psychological suspense series about a girl who has given up her life as an idol after being assaulted by a fan. And she shuns her femininity and starts dressing as a boy. And in high school, she keeps to herself, but her fellow student realizes who she is. And so it basically seems to be a story about this girl kind of dealing with trauma and like abuse and then that playing into feelings of gender identity and expression so this really sounds up my alley really sounds interesting i'm looking forward to reading it yeah the idol trauma aspect kind of reminded me of like perfect blue yeah in a way but yeah i i'm interested to see what what kind of like the general tone of the story is yeah whether whether it's just like her rejecting femininity because she doesn't want to be seen as an object of desire, an object of, like, a sexualized object of desire from the male gaze, and so she wants to reject femininity because of that, or because afterwards she does also generally have feelings of, like, wanting to not just present as male, but being... Like, I want to see how it plays with, like, queer themes and whether it, it becomes a story of, like, someone coming out as trans, so... Uh, I'm curious from that angle too, like how it'll go. But like it's it sounds like it'll be dealing with some really pertinent themes that I am interested in reading about and like seeing in stories. But uh then we got another huge license that people are excited about. Ping pong by Taya Matsumoto. More Taya Matsumoto and finally Ping Pong, something that people have been clamoring for for over a decade. This is finally bringing out in May twenty twenty. Of course, about ace high school tennis players pushing themselves to the limit in a story of self-discovery. Very famously adapted into an anime by Saki Yuasa. And yeah, people are really excited for this because it's, people love this story. Uh, and it's going to be presented in two volumes that are going to feature a color art and a bonus story that was uh, also created and also it's going to have an afterword by the original Japanese editor. All I can say to this is about damn time. <laughs> like l- literally we've got like a bunch of other Taiyamatsumoto works but never Ping Pong like his arguably most recognizable mm-hmm. series. So yeah the, the, I'm glad that this is finally licensed. I know a ton of people who are excited for this and hey I'm definitely going to pick it up. Mm-hmm. There are also some additional licenses we need to mention. Monster Hunter World Official Complete Works Book is going to come out in August 2020. And Korean manga, I believe, by In Wan-Yoon, Kyung Il-Yang, and uh, Yoon Hee Kim, uh, called The Kingdom of the Gods, is coming out in May 2020. And this comic is actually the inspiration for a Netflix series called Kingdom. Not confused with the uh, other kingdom. Not to be confused with the other kingdom. When I was searching for kingdom movie tickets earlier this year, I got links to that Netflix show instead. So it definitely confused me. But yes, the original comic upon which that show is based on is coming out. And now let us talk about the Adult Swim panels we attended. Starting off with the Robot Chicken panel, which had 
a ton of guests. First, we'll mention that because we were lottery winners, we sat in, of course, the main floor seating, and we actually got to sit pretty uh, high up in terms of seating. So that was really nice, too, that we got to sit so close to the stage. But also, they gave out free robot chicken shirts and these little popsicle smile things at the panel, which is really nice, you know. The, the shirts, we managed to get some good extra large shirts, which is nice. That fits me just fine. And we got the smiles that are like the, the little things they put over the toys and robot chicken, you know, the mouths. So the, those are really fun to hold up and play with too. So yeah, those are some good goodies that I guess only lottery ticket winners were allowed to get. I'm not sure. I think so. But yeah, then, the panel was a ton of people on it. I don't even remember everyone who was on it. Like, of course, Seth Green, Matt Seinrich, and Breckenmeyer, they were on it. The panel was hosted by someone from, where were they from? The Verge? Somewhere. But it was a good moderator. She was a good moderator and asked some fun questions. Like, one of the questions she asked was like, have you guys peaked? And they were like, what are you implying? They're like, no, we're still pretty good creatively. Before the guests even came on the stage, they showed this great montage of robot chicken sketches from every season. Like, even starting before the first season with the original 40-minute collection of shorts that Set and Matt did based on Toy Fair magazine that they had shopped around with Sony before Robot Chicken even became a full show. So that was really cool. And yeah, like... It was so fun to relive, like, some of the best sketches in that montage clip, just hyping up to the 10th season clip reveals. It's really got the audience super enthused, and we got all the classics. So we got some real classics that they mentioned in there, like, first appearance of Bitch Pudding. We got the Pokemon sketch, where it's like, what the heck was this? We got the Gummy Bear sketch, where it's, like, frolicking, and then it gets caught in the bear trap. Really, really good stuff. But, yeah, the panel was super fun, because... You know, it's basically mostly audience Q&A after, like, going over 10 seasons of the show. How do you guys stay creative? Any sketches you guys never wanted to do but never ever really got it made? Like, Breckenmeyer was mentioning that he always wants to get his Ben 10 sketch into the show. Even though he knows nothing about Ben 10, but they keep rejecting it because they aren't good sketches. But actually, I was re-watching some Robot Chicken recently, and... I forgot they have done a Ben 10 sketch before. Maybe it was one of Breckenmeyer's. Yeah, haven't they done like one or two? I think so. And I, I saw one like yesterday. I was rewatching some Robot Chicken and it was like Ben has turned 14. So Asthma gives him like a telescope and then he reveals that he's the purpose of the telescope is to spy on his neighbors changing and then he gives him a sock. So it's like it's a really simple joke. Like Ben is not. 10 anymore, he's 14, so he's horny, I guess. It's a joke that requires only surface-level knowledge of Ben 10. It actually is not a deep cut of Ben 10 at all, so it's actually super general and super works. So it's, I, when I realized that, oh, you don't really know, need to know much about the show to write this. It's literally surface-level, but it's still super funny. That was pretty fun to, to come to that realization. It's like, oh, wow. So, hey, he has had some successful attempts getting Ben 10 sketches in. We'll see uh, how many more he's able to get. But they talk about 
some of the stuff they're allowed to do that they've been able to do. They talked about that, yes, there will be Fortnite in Game of Thrones sketches. If you've been watching the show, there's already been a Fortnite sketch in the new season. There was one where, like, Miss Frizzle is, like, leading the bus that goes into, like, the Fortnite islands or whatever. And then she, like, gets a bunch of people killed before they kill her. But then all the people on the bus are killed anyway. And then they answered one person's question, like, would you do a Marvel special? And they were like, well... You kind of have to ask Disney to play ball with that. There's like these two big corporations, Disney and Warner Brothers. They kind of have to play nice. But, you know, if they do, sure. So there was this kid who asked a question. And I forget what the kid's question was. But somehow it led to Breckenmeyer trying to explain masturbation to him. And then, like, he was being chastised by the other panelists. But then the kid was like, it's okay. I watched South Park. And then everyone erupted in laughter. <laughs> and Matt was like... Wow, thanks, uh, Matt and Trey. Great job. Seth was like, I really believe children are a future. And then throughout the the time this kid was trying to talk to them, like, Breckenmeyer was trying to explain inappropriate things to this kid. And he got pulled by the ear by one of the other panelists at one point, like, back to his chair. And it, it became a recurring thing throughout the panel, even when this kid was not up asking the question where he was trying to explain <laughs> inappropriate things to him. So it was super funny. I love when he's trying to explain what the orgy is. Oh, yeah. Uh, then the, when they, at the end of the panel, like, someone asked him what would a robot chicken orgy look like, and then Breckenmeyer just gets uh, down on the stage, and, like, other panelists are, like, holding their microphones on him, and he's imitating giving a blowjob. And then one of the other panelists, like, she gets up and she stands in front of Breckenmeyer and then Pete pretends to give her oral too and it's like it's just insane <laughs> that they, what the hell craziness they do uh, of course there was like a mention of uh, Emmett the kid who Breckenmeyer has a like a rivalry slash contentious relationship with he was not at this panel but you know someone made the joke I only found out recently that this has been a thing that's been going on for years at New York Comic Con, and even San Diego Comic Con panels is mentioning Emmett. So that's pretty funny. Um, they talk about a lot of really awesome stuff. I wish I had taken notes, but the entire thing is like available online, I think. Yeah. Unlike the next panel that uh, was at the Hammerstein. Yeah, the next panel after that was, of course, the Gendy Tarkovsky Primal Panel. Now, Primal, the first episode, had already come out the previous day, but I think most of the people were so busy at Comic-Con that they hadn't even seen it yet. So, anyway, the panel started off with just showing the first episode. And then after that was Q&A with Gendy. And there were actually a lot of good questions, and Gendy even commented that, hey, these are pretty good questions, much better than San Diego Comic-Con. So, true some shade at He threw that shade well. Yeah, and man, we were so close up to the stage, like, we were really able to see Gendy, we were really able to see the first episode of Primal. I guess going into that, like, man, what an experience the first episode of Primal is. Like, really visual storytelling, really hammering in some really heavy emotions, really focus on this concept of depth and depth uniting these two characters, Fear and Fang, just forming a bond out of the deaths of their families and then just living through this world, trying to stay alive, saving off, yeah. encroaching death from other sides. Like, 
in sheer incredible artistry, like a, a real departure from Gendy 2 in terms of visual style, really moving away from the flat OPA aesthetic and really embracing like a much more rougher, really Conan-esque tone and feel to it. And Gendy talked a lot about the artistic inspirations, the people that they brought in from outside to form the look of the show, which is really awesome and fascinating to hear about. I mean, this is something Gendy emphasized again and again during the panel, is that they want to try something different. They don't want to keep doing the same things again. They really want to evolve and continue to make new different things. Like, Gendy mentioned that there was a point after Symbionic Kaiden ended where he was like, maybe I should just do a Dexter reboot. And he played around with that idea and he realized, no, that's not me. That's not what I want to do. It doesn't feel right. It's like, this is pure passion for animation and exploring what the medium can accomplish and pushing boundaries. And I really appreciate Gendy for that. Like, just hearing an animation legend like Gendy who has made works that I've been watching since I was a little kid. Like, just talk about the evolution of his art and what he's trying to accomplish and, like, what he was inspired by. It was really, really awesome. And, man... Sure, we missed the Wiz Media panel, but like I wouldn't trade being at the Who Gendy cares panel. about this anymore? We got to see freaking Gendy. Yeah, right? That was so much co- more important and cooler and awesome. So, yeah. Lots of awesome, awesome uh, moments of the Gendy panel. Yeah, Great the question. interesting thing to note about the Gendy panel, too, is that Gendy was the only one on stage oh, during yeah. the panel. No moderator. And during the Q&A, he had no moderator whatsoever. He was handling all the questions by himself, which, I mean, huge props to him. He freaking nailed it. He always was giving, like, such great insight to every question, and it was just so amazing. Like, you can really tell he's, like, a master of his craft. Yeah. Like, he really knows how to handle a crowd. I will say that I think some people sort of asked the same question in different ways. Like, he did have to give the answer that, you know, we just want to do something different more than once. But overall, really great set of questions. Of course, there was the obligatory, will you make more symbiotic Titan? And Gendy's like, <laughs> well, you know, it was really tragic what happened to Titan. Uh, right now, I want to do new things, but, you know, I don't even know if I'm allowed to make more because there's a bunch of complicated things with that, but never say never. We'll see. So, you know, don't give up hope, but of course, you know, there's a lot of factors involved, more than just Gendy wanting to do it. There's, like, utter legal things. Yeah, he also talked about why the Popeye project that he was working on got canceled. Like, Sony approached him to do Popeye, and he agreed only if it struck to his vision of like what he wanted for Popeye, and they agreed to that. But then it didn't pan out just because management at Sony really changed. Yeah, it sounds like the Sony leak had a lot of uh, played a big factor in uh, the cancellation too. Yeah. I think after that they started reevaluating a lot of the projects at Sony, and I guess they didn't want to do Popeye anymore. Yeah, which was uh, unfortunate, but. Hey, it led Gendy to be able to do more Jack and Primal. Like, basically, Primal came out uh, at the end of Jack Season 5. Lazo approached him, and Keith had a relationship with Lazo for years, and Lazo was like, what's next? 
Gendy on the spot just sold him primal with this idea he's been gestating just as an idea, like this idea of this caveman character. And this world, since like, I guess 2011, he's been thinking about this, and on the spot he just mentioned the idea, and last was like, cool, let's go forward with that. So, really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, during the panel, uh, Gendy mentions that the reason he's working with Adult Swim over Kurtnowork is really because of Lazo. Yeah, it's Lazo. Like, the relationship that he has with him is kind of what has made Primal, but also Samurai Jack Season 5 possible. I mean, even Samurai Jack in the first place, that came out of a dinner he had with Lazo, where he just mentioned the idea, and then the show came out of that and went from there, so... So, in, in short, all hail Lazo, our new overlord. <laughs> Mike Lazo has an eye for talent and an eye for great shows. But yeah, I mean, Primal Panel, really incredible, and I just love that experience. I'm super looking forward to watching more Primal now that it's coming out, and yeah. Uh, they also revealed at the Primal Panel, or rather confirmed, that yes, Primal is going to be more than five episodes, it's going to be a full ten episode season. Yeah, people were really confused on that, because I think initially some people assumed that they meant ten, fifteen minute segments. And assume that that like those five episodes that are being shown are just the entire thing, but apparently not. It it is ten episodes. I guess like they just need time to finish the other five, so those will come out at some point. Again, he said on the panel that the the other episodes are taking more time than expected, so they decided to do it this way. With the first five episodes will be this event, and I guess the next five episodes will be another event down the line. Yeah, I mean, hey, that works. It's a, it's a very experimental series, and honestly, like, I'm not sure if it would fit on Tanami. I know a lot of people want it on Tanami, but, like, it's a very different type of show, and, like, I think doing it, like, releasing it in this unique way is kind of the best approach, because of how out there it is. Yeah, I don't think it wouldn't fit Tanami, but I do think, like, this format of releasing an event style as like a five night event is really cool. And, uh, it fits like the special nature of the show, I would say. But yeah, the primal panel, super awesome. And our final panel for the night was the Wonder Woman Bloodlines screening. And this was another big event that was, had a huge panel of cast members attending it. As well as the director of the film itself. They basically just started off by screening the movie itself. This is like the first Wonder Woman animated DC feature since the Wonder Woman film from 2009. So it's taken them 10 years to do another Wonder Woman movie. But this one was really nice. I liked it a lot. It's basically Wonder Woman... The first, they kind of brushed through the original story just to establish Wonder Woman's relationship with Vanessa, who becomes Silver Swan, and like basically establish the stakes of like Wonder Woman also knows what it's like to deal with a difficult mother who like doesn't value her, and she sees herself and Vanessa and Vanessa's relationship with her mother. And she sees Vanessa as, like, family. And so even when Vanessa is, like, falling to the dark path and getting involved with Dr. Poison and some shady business, like, and even trying to kill her, like, she's still trying to help her and kind of 
save her because she is family. And it ends in a very heartwarming way, this conflict where it's like, Vanessa does end up trying to protect Wonder Woman. And then, you know, the two do reconcile uh, at the end. And so it's really sweet. It basically shows uh, Wonder Woman's power, like, like strength as an empathetic character. Uh, in addition to just her being, you know, a strong character, she's also very kind and empathetic, and that saves the day and saves lives too. This was a really good, like, point to make, I think. It's kind of interesting, I guess, the way that the movie ends up playing with Greek mythology. Like, we get, like, this, uh, Minotaur character who joins the cast at some point named Ferdinand, which is pretty fun. The villain kind of takes the misdirect, where you think it's the final villain's going to be like Cyber and Dr. Poison, but it actually becomes Medusa, and then so Wonder Woman has to fight Medusa, but it's a good moment for Wonder Woman, because, you know, she defends Temascara from a big foe. She really has this awesome moment where she basically drops snake poison into her eyes to blind her, so Medusa's stone-turning powers can't work on her, and then that allows her to help beat Medusa. There's really cool stuff there. And I really like uh, Cyber, who, of course, is revealed to be Veronica Kale. And Veronica Kale is basically Wonder Woman's Lex Luthor, right down to the fact that, I'll get you next time, Wonder Woman! You haven't seen the last of me! I'm rich and smarter! <laughs> this is your fault I have cancer, Wonder Woman! <laughs> Oh my god. I love Lex Luthor, so Veronica Kale is just another version of Lex Luthor, and so I love her. I want more Veronica Kale. <laughs> Apparently this is her first, like, appearance in any animated thing, so... Uh, more Veronica Kale and more Wonder Woman things, please. That's just fun. But, yes. Uh, I mean, it's super obvious that she was cyber throughout the entire movie, right? I mean, it was pretty evident from the beginning, but it was still no. pretty... Fun stuff. I enjoyed this movie. Was, I thought it was a really good DC uh, feature. I think I liked it more than the previous Wonder Woman film from 2009. I don't think I ever saw that one. Yeah, I would say I think I liked this more than the live-action Wonder Woman film. I just think it had some fun moments. Of course... That's surprising. Of course, with these DC TV uh, directed video features, you know, there's the animation can be limited to parts. Like, the final battle is pretty good, but uh, there are times where the action animation feels a little stilted. Uh, there are times to where they insert jokes in there where the jokes themselves aren't bad, but like the commuting timing is off because the direction is a little flat. It doesn't really play up comedy. This is especially true of musical cues. The musical cues doesn't really help serve the joke very well. Like there's a particular scene that just kind of felt flat where, you know, Edda, who is one of Wonder Woman's friends, and gets to have another fun, like, moment at the end of the movie where, like, she has two women on each side of her arm, which got a lot of claps and cheers in the audience, which is neat. But, anyway, Ada was, like, complaining, like, oh, why am I here? Why am I going on this dangerous mission? And Steve was like, well, you wanted to be here. And Ada was like, yeah, of course, why would I miss this for the world? And that just, it was supposed to be a funny scene, but the delivery and then the, the staging of it didn't really emphasize the comedicness of it. So it's things like that that made it feel, make comedy moments feel a little off to me. But overall, story-wise, character-wise, uh, I enjoyed the film a lot. It was really fun. And then the Q&A with the cast afterwards, you got Rosario Dawson, Voice of Wonder Woman, for 
past couple of years of DC movies there. You had Courtney Taylor and uh, I think Constance Zimmer. You had Mary of Garrow Pelosi who played Vanessa there. Uh, of course, you had the, the director there. Yeah, it was a good like cast interview, you know, talking about what Wonder Woman means to them, like what it was like to work in the movie. Uh, Rosario Dawson was like, she was like crying seeing the movie because, you know, it was like so awesome to like see it. So really nice stuff. Emphasizing, you know, importance of, you know, diverse voices and stuff like that. I felt like they kind of pushed that question on at his voice actress a little bit, but, you know, still good response and answer. And I think the film itself very seamlessly and without really putting it over your head kind of explores those themes in a good way. Like, I really appreciated that it really was focused on a central female cast. Like, Steve Trevor is kind of the only major male character in the film. And that's kind of rare, especially in superhero things, and I really appreciated that. But, yeah, I, I like the movie a lot. It was a premiere for a few hours because it went on sale in digital, like, literally at midnight that night. And then it's going to come out on uh, Blu-ray on October 22nd. But I enjoyed the film, and I was glad we were able to see it. I was glad the queue process to see it in the morning went pretty smoothly. Like, we we walked all the way to the end of a line, and then all the way to the front of the line, and there wasn't really much of a line. We just had to, like, get our badges tapped, and we had our seats preserved. So that was Even though they didn't really check the badges when you went into main Yeah, events. they really didn't, so I don't know... How they could have technically just sneaked them. You really could have, so and I don't really know what the whether they were actually paying attention to that. But yeah, I mean, what was your impression of the uh, film? And this was basically our first film in a main event, a first panel event in a main events hall. So what was your impression of that? Yeah, so like I felt that the film started off a bit slow. I think mainly because like. We kind of know Wonder Woman's origin story, but once you understood the direction that the film was going in with, like, its focus on kind of, like, those familial connections and, like, Wonder Woman's past, like, it all made sense. And, like, by the end, I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was, yeah, like you said, really good and a lot of great messages and overall just a solid film. Indeed. But that was our Friday. We went back home, grabbed pizza, much cheaper pizza this time, right outside our hotel. I think like $12 cheaper than the one in the afternoon. Thank you, $1 New York pizza. But yeah, we just ate pizza, watched the new episode of Black Jesus, lamented on how empty the show feels without the rest of the cast, thinking for a sec, wait, is everyone dead? Because of one line that Booty says... (laughs) Then looking up and thinking that, oh, no, maybe it's just an exaggeration. Maybe not every character is dead. Maybe it's just Dick. But, yeah, we that was our night. And then we got Saturday morning. We were first thing we really did because we woke up late was we went to the Say Mono screening in Q&A, hosted by Ryan Brown and featuring cast members from the show. And... Basically, you had Alvaro Rodriguez on the panel. You had Angelica Vale and Johnny Cruz. Uh, and they kind of did some Q&A, asked the casting questions. So, Sayvanos was actually Angelica's first uh, voice acting role in English because she's mainly known for 
like Mexican shows and uh, telenovelas, I believe. And the cast was very happy that, you know, they really did focus on making it like a, a Latinx focused cast, uh, mostly people of color. There's really only one white character, like Brister's boss or other DIA agent who gives him like the orders at the beginning of the first episode, who he's sleeping with his wife, which is, <laughs> it was a great funny moment. And Alvaro says that he considers Semanos as like Machete meets Kill Bill on the set of Coco, which is like a, a good quote. Definitely matches your Ryan's quote of like, it's so complicated, but it's like John Carpenter flakes baked in the hot Mexican sun. It's a good quote. He mentioned some other interesting details about the show too, like that, uh, you know, they had kind of been playing around with this idea for the story for years you know, shopping it around, and they went through a lot of people who liked the show, but didn't know what to do with it until they finally found ways to Netflix, which was pretty cool. And, yeah, then they basically did the screening of the first episode. The show had already come out on Netflix by this point, by a few days, but most of the room seemed to not have seen the episode. So, you know, again, because we were all busy with Colin Con probably. So it was also our first time seeing it. Uh, I will say I like the premise. Characters seem fun. Animation feels a little rough. Like it feels like there's keyframes missing at times. Very, it's not very smooth. There are definitely some story cuts from shot to shot that feel a little jarring and kind of hard to follow. So, and production-wise, like uh, the first episode, I felt that it was a little rough, but I'm looking forward to watching more, because it did gash my attention. I do like the characters, and I am intrigued by the story. What is your impression of the first episode? The same on this. I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, like you said, the big thing that's bothered me since the trailers is the animation at times definitely feels like it's missing frames. Yeah. But in this episode of the first one, it felt less noticeable compared to other footage I'd seen. So... Maybe it's been polished up since I last saw it, to an extent. I definitely felt it was really pose to pose, though. Like, Wonder Woman and Bloodlines also was something that was pose to pose, but it was pretty smooth generally, but this was, like, very choppy. It felt like you needed some more in-betweens there. Because, yeah, it just it felt very stilted at times. Like, the characters were really rigid and not very flexible in a way that I like to see from animation. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I think overall I enjoyed it a lot. I, I'm definitely going to be uh, watching the rest of it on Netflix when I have time. Because, like, the story itself was really good. Mm-hmm. But I really did like the quote-unquote twist in the first episode. There was a really great comment from... Uh, Alvarez at the end of the, in the answer of a question, but like the kid in the first episode and him, you know, getting killed. There's a reason the show isn't called Eight Monos or whatever the <laughs> Spanish word for eight is. But you could see that on shirt, the kid had eight on his shirt. So it's like, oh, little foreshadowing there that nope, this kid, he's gotta go. He's uh, extra wheel. It's the same monos. So our main street, they have the six hands. They're the same monos. So that was pretty 
fun little detail there. And yeah, speaking of uh, Spanish language jokes, like uh, the Brister joke where the food seller basically lies about what the Spanish word for police officer is to Brister, and he, then he says like the wrong word. Do you know what what word he's saying? Because I I didn't manage to look it up. I don't know. I I forget what word he even said. Yeah. So the Spanish word for, for for police is policia. Yeah, that's the joke later, is that she just says yeah. policia, and he says, it's okay, it's okay, I'm something. I think it's, it's probably something very embarrassing, like shit or something, but yeah. So, that was funny. So, then the Q&A happened, and so the first question was actually from uh, Angelica Whale's daughter, I think who asked, why did the man need water? Why did he transform and what made him transform? And this got huge laughter, uh, delightful laughter from the audience. And basically their answer was like, you gotta watch the show. But it was super adorable, super cute. Uh, you know, that they wanted to know, yeah, like what made the guy transform? <laughs> and why did he need water? So, very, very funny. And they also mentioned another fun little details, like they didn't have a huge demographic in mind for the series, they just wanted to make it feel authentic. Uh, this is the first project that, uh, animated that Alvarez has worked on. And as far as the question goes of, uh, why should you watch Seymanos, uh, Alvaro said it's the only thing of its kind right now. Other responses were is that it'll change your life and uh, you'll find a hot cough. I forget who said that, but that was also another funny uh, little line there. So, same model panel. It was a lot of fun. I think afterwards is when you uh, asked Orion for a picture and uh, you got a picture with Orion Brown. Yeah, yeah. That, that was uh, really cool. Because, I mean, like, he was walking the same direction as us, and I'm just like, okay, screw it, I'm just gonna do it. So, yeah, I'm glad that uh, we did that. And then we had, like, a short little conversation uh, with him afterwards, because, like, he noticed that I had, like, a One Punch Man, like, uh, yeah. t-shirt on and stuff. Yeah. Then I just mentioned, like, hey, I listen to the Shonen Jump podcast a lot. I was, like, uh, listening uh, to your thoughts and everyone else's, and I mentioned that uh, you had interviewed, like, Marlene before. Yeah. I wish, uh, I didn't want to photobomb your picture, but I would say I wish I had asked, you know, to take a picture. Been a little braver. But that was super cool getting to talk with Orion. We actually got to talk to him uh, the next day, too, after the Art of Transformers panel. We just passed by him, uh, leaving the Transformers panel, and we just said hi and said, yeah, we love the, the Transformers panel. Yeah. And he recognized us, which was, uh, cool. Yeah, it's really nice. But after the Seimanos panel, we attended the Sound and Fury panel. So this is a new anime... Well, it's a mixed-media film, but there are anime uh, segments. I think half of it is anime. It's on Netflix now. It's about 41 minutes. It's based on uh, the album Sound and Fury by Sturgill Simpson. And it's got a lot of great talent on board. We got Shinsuke... Oshai, who's done work on the Marvel anime shows. We have Haroki Takeuchi, who's uh, worked on the Animatrix, uh, Shenmue, Berserk, 5 centimeters per second. Takayasu Kuroda, who has done work with Hatsune Miku. 
Junpei Mizusaki, who's done work on the JoJo's opening, Pop Team Epic, Batman Ninja, Takashi Okazaki, who's done work on Afro Samurai and Summer Wars. Then you had Artel Izam and Henry Turlo from Diarshitajio, who are, you know, it's an anime studio in Japan, and these guys are like American animators who started an anime studio in Japan, which is really cool. And yeah, of course, Sturgill Simpson himself was also on the panel. So they basically went through kind of the, the process of making Sound and Fury. Like the, they had like a video showing some concept meetings Sturgill had with the Japanese creative teams, you know, talking through the process, the storyboards, concept arts, animatics. They showed an animatic for like so, uh, some scenes from the Sound and Fury film. They showed like a uh, concept art drawing where they revealed like, why the main heroine has like a bandage on her ass and a lust hat and why she has all these seven deadly sins uh, labels all over her body too. Uh, I didn't believe the reason why she has a bandage on her butt is because she's nicked it riding car, motorcycle, whatever throughout the years. So that was kind of a amusing little exchange. Basically, they went through a bunch of concept art for characters and the vehicle. The vehicle uh, especially was very important for Sturgill for them to get right. Um, they showed some storyboards. They showed like the live action uh, reference filming that they did, which is really cool. They talked a little bit about their work with green screens. That was really neat. And they revealed that there's going to make a Sound and Fury comic that will expand on the story of the film. And I think that's going to be drawn by Jason Aaron. So I think that's going to come sometime soon. And they had a Q&A where uh, fans asked them, you know, just a series of questions. They gave out prizes like a signed t-shirt and then uh, some signed cards, I think. I wish we had asked a question because it's pretty much any question they gave a prize to. So it didn't even have to be that complex. Like, but yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, I, I had not seen Sound and Fury. I really knew much about even Sturgill Simpson before attending the panel. This is something I knew you really wanted to go to because, you know, this team had done, previously done Batman Ninja. And I thought it was really cool looking to create a process and get to hear from a lot of different awesome people. About like the process of doing a, like a true international project like this, which is really, really neat. And I think that, you know, they ha- asked a question about like, would this dream team come together again for more collaborations? And they said, you know, if you guys keep watching it on Netflix and, you know, make a demand for it, like maybe, hopefully. And I've been seeing the film get a lot more buzz recently, so hopefully it's attracting eyeballs and people are checking it out and they'll make more. I actually watched it for the first time uh, recently while I was at the gym and exercising, and it was actually a really nice thing to exercise to because it's really good music, really awesome imagery, really keeps my attention focused and my adrenaline rising. And it's kind of an interesting story. So, like, the theme of it is that the film at the end ends with a quote by Masashi Miyamoto, essentially saying that the film is dedicated to victims of senseless violence over the world. And so the film is full of really crazy violence and stuff. 
it does revel in it to some extent. But if you pay attention to the story, it's essentially about this girl carrying on the revenge quest of her father. In the end, she does succeed in killing the people responsible for killing her father and her family and that stuff, but it's not very satisfying because the problems haven't gone away. She really didn't have, like, the satisfying victory over them that she wanted. Like, she did almost die, and she was kind of, like, bailed out by her friends almost, so it really wasn't that satisfying in terms of, in like, killing them and stuff. So now what next? What's next for her? Like, the world is still full of problems. Where do things go from here? So there is a sort of emptiness toward the end of the film that was kind of interesting for that character. So it was pretty fun to watch, and it did have, like, an interesting team to it. It does have some non-sequiturs moments that I'm trying to think about, like the live-action segments in the film. I wonder how they relate to the anime segments. I think that they do have all to do with, like, the whole idea of, like, this is a post-apocalyptic world created by nuclear fallout and stuff. So there are people in, like, hazmat suits walking around cities or whatever. So it's an interesting film. Storch will definitely mention that he's watched the film a lot of times and always is picking up new time, new stuff in it. So I think it is an interesting piece of art worthy of watching over and over again. Have you seen the film uh, since the panel, B-Lord? I have not had time to see it, um, but I plan to watch it at some point. Yeah, I would recommend it. It's short, but it's very, very interesting. But yeah, at the end of the panel, they basically gave out, you know, a free art card for Saturn Fury, as well as a free snack, umaibo, teriyaki-flavored umaibo, which is basically a Cheeto that's teriyaki-flavored, and I ate it. Well, in line for the next panel we were at, and I didn't like it, but I there wasn't a trash can around, so I just finished it and drank water. But I didn't like the taste. What did you like the taste of the amiibo, you lord? I thought it was like okay. It was like a I've had amiibo before, so like it kind of was just pretty average. I mean, I'm not a big like teriyaki flavored, I guess, snack person. I, I kind of prefer, like, barbecue flavoring over a teriyaki flavoring, because, like, teriyaki's kind of very sweet. So that kind of, that's a bit of a turnoff for me. Yeah. But then we attended a really awesome panel, the Disney TV Animation Showrunners panel, where they had Chris and Shane Hewden, creators of Big City Greens. We had Matt Braley, creator of Amphibia, and Dana Terrace, creator of The Owl House, on the panel along with the head of Disney TV Animation. And you know, it's really cool because all these creators worked together before on Gravity Falls. So they all had like a common connection. And what was awesome with the panelists, they basically kind of went through their professional careers from like their childhood days to college to their work afterwards. Basically the entire path they took to becoming show creators themselves, which was really, really awesome. And... There were some technical difficulties at the beginning when Chris and Shane were, like, giving their history. So really in the middle of it, did the projector actually start working and we were able to see, like, the slides? But every artist on the panel had come up with their own, like, slideshow. Uh, they told the story of their career history. Uh, Shane and Chris 
you know, definitely drew a storyboard, like elaborate storyboard detailing the history. Whereas Matt Brealey kind of had a map that he showed, and then Dana Terrace had more of a traditional slideshow that was still very pretty and showed a lot of awesome, like, concept art and awesome uh, stills from her previous work and stuff. So it was really, really neat. But, yeah, I mean, they basically went through their earliest artwork as a kid, inspirations they had for the shows they made. When I saw Dana's slide about, like, her work in SVA, I was, like, immediately floored because I recognized the still from her thesis film, Mirage, and I was like, oh, my God, she made Mirage, which was, like, a hugely inspirational film when I was first going into college. It's, like, this ambitious 10-minute thesis film, which is insane to me that someone could make that. And it was kind of really inspiring in a way because, you know, it was kind of incredible like even an artist that i thought was like so incredible like she even she was had struggled uh, a little bit after college you know finding work and really it's the common thing all of these artists had said is that they really found work by putting themselves out there putting their work out there meeting people so you know i think those are the key lessons i think you need most people most artists should take away is that you really need to just create stuff, put your arc out there, and then just meet other artists. So that was really, really cool. And again, a lot of really good questions about their process, uh, what Disney TV animation is working for, looking for, and the active pursuit of making more inclusive and diverse shows. Great quote from Shane Houghton at the end, where it was like, the more you write, the more you learn, and the better you get. And a lot of awesome uh, goodies that they gave away at the panel. They Before the panel started, in the line, they gave out a bunch of t-shirts from the, each of the three shows that the showrunners had made. We both got the Big City Green shirts. Unfortunately, you know, they had them in various sizes. You managed to trade for an extra large one, but I still only got stuck with a large. But then you graciously gave me the extra large shirt, and so I'm wearing that now. But yeah, it's like, very high competition for like the the shirts of the right size. You had a lot of trading in the line for different yeah, size. Yeah, I shirts. think once people got into, they're just like, yeah, we can't deal with this. No trading allowed. Yeah, uh, they definitely wanted to keep the line moving. I think uh, they should have given out the shirts at the end, maybe, <laughs> and maybe had separate lines for like, hey, here's extra large shirts. Here's or just like put it on a counter somewhere. And be like, okay, this pile's the extra large as yeah. large. Instead of like just giving out like random shirts because like yeah, because like the attendees weren't really looking at the sizes too. Like they gave like a little girl like an extra large. Yeah, <laughs> so that could have been more organized. But they also gave out like these sticker sheets during the panel, and then at the end of the panel they gave out posters. So there were a lot of goodies that they give out at the Disney TV animation panel. And this was definitely a highlight because it's so awesome to just be in a panel with three showrunners, hear their career journeys, learn some great art advice from them. Uh, it's very inspiring and it's very, very awesome. So that was an awesome highlight of the weekend for sure. But then afterwards, we went to the Castlevania Spotlight panel, which basically had the cast, most of the cast from the show, as well as Warren Ellis uh, on there. And... They basically went through a bunch of questions about the show. 
one of the fun things that they did at the start of the panel was like they had uh the cast say a message with vampire teeth in the mouths and it was like this really complicated long message. Like Castlevania is the greatest show and I'm proud to be part a part of such a critically acclaimed series. Everyone who worked on the show is stupendous, and it's been an honor to serve with such illustrious individuals, and I'd like to say thank you to the fans for your passion and dedication to the special series. So that's a mouthful even without having these vampire fang braces in your mouths to say all this stuff. Yeah, that that was really funny. There were a lot <laughs> of questions in this panel. Uriah even commented towards the end of this, oh my god, why did I load this up with so many questions? We need to blast through these here. Because uh, there were so many questions that they even forgot to do the prize break until like very late into the panel. But that also was a product of there being so many panelists to, you know, that it was hard to like go through at a good clip. But, yeah, they talked about, you know, just the process of how the show came about. You know, Warren Ellis mentioned that he had never really played the Castlevania games. He mainly used Wikipedia and researched series online, but that kind of helped him make, like, a compelling story out of the, the elements. You know, Adam Dietz mentioned that they didn't set out to make a great video game adaption. They set out to make a good show. Uh, Sam Dietz mentioned that he's heavily involved in the storyboard, so it's a lot of time trying for the series, even though he's uh, in the director war. You know, they talked about the characters a lot. They went into details about how fight scenes were made. Warren Ellis says he approaches every writing project differently, the best fit circumstances, a project and narrative. And then, basically, you know, they went through all these different questions. I took pictures of all these slides, but, again, Uriah was right. It's too too many questions, takes too long to get to. <laughs> Let's just end with the important thing they did, which is they showed a teaser for season three at the end of it. It was a very short clip. Probably like very first episode. It's something how, like how the first season starts. But basically Trevor and Sifa, um, you know, they are riding in their carriage as we saw at the end of the last season. You know, they're basically having some banter and they're waiting for some monsters to just attack them so they can fight them. And then basically the clip ends with Sifa like pretending that, oh my gosh, we're so defenseless. Whatever shall we do? And it's really funny. So that was a delight. It was a short clip, but I think that uh, I'm looking forward to Scalzanus Season 3. I guess we are sticking with Trevor and Sifa and Alucard and not going to the other Belmonts or other games. So we will see where the story goes from here. What do you think overall, the Castlevania Man? I thought it was pretty good. I mean, I know some people were disappointed that they didn't really give much information on when Season 3 is coming out, but hey, they're working on it. We got footage of it. I I think that's a win. I agree. And our final panel of the night was a screening of Human Lost. The dub premiere screening on the East Coast because it had already been shown in Los Angeles a week earlier. And the film premiered, premiered back at AX, but we were not able to attend that because we were at a different event. This was our first time seeing the film, and it was good that we saw this. This was our only chance to really see it. So, this film is basically loosely based on an Ozumu Dazai short story. It's, it's more like inspired by it. It's, it doesn't have much to do with the, the novel outside of borrowing the 
structure from it. Anyway, this is a film by Polygon Pictures, directed by Katsuki uh, Motohiro, uh, written by Toru Wakata, designed by Yusuke Kozaki, the character designs. So, you know, this is actually a really stunning CG animated feature. You know, I thought that the character animation was incredible, especially the expression work on this thing. And I really enjoyed it on the animation perspective. And honestly, uh, I really liked the story too. I thought it was quite interesting. It basically is set in this apocalyptic future where it basically company controlled government it's like a factory state like the ultimate end of capitalist involvement in politics is that capitalism has taken over like it is a company owned country now japan and essentially they've made it so that human lifespan is now averaged at 120 years but the actual environment and living conditions in the world are awful. Like, it's polluted. People have to wear gas masks everywhere. So it's actually a very false paradise. Because you might live longer, but you are work 19 hours a day. You're basically slaves to the company who controls everything. And, yeah, you just are, are stuck in the system. So uh, as a consequence of, like the technology that keeps people alive, they actually, like, fundamentally change human biology to the point that they become these monsters called Lost, and they become agitated, or they get offline the network of the, the company. So, the film is about the, the protagonist, uh, essentially... He is able to kind of retain kind of uh, his consciousness in the lost form. And he's able to fight against utter lost. And so he is basically led one way or another by someone who believes in the system and believes that through the system we can they can make a better world. And then the another person who is the re- person who created the medical technology that is responsible for people's lifespans being extended and for people, uh, you know, being turned into lost anyway. Like, he wants to destroy the system and cause an apocalypse that just forces humanity to restart from zero, which involves killing a lot of people. So that's why he's the bad guy. He's, you know, even though he's against the, the real villains, which are the elite capitalists who are controlling the state and the company and whatever... Like, he, like, you know, he wants to kill people. But, anyway, ultimately the protagonist stops both the villain who has power control lost and wants to destroy, kill people and everyone. But also, he ends up killing all the evil capitalists who want to harvest people's organs to extend their own lifespans. And kind of artificially create this idea of the 120 year national average lifespan, which is actually kind of really only applicable to them. So ultimately, the film does end up having that system sort of dismantled, at least like the the power structure is dismantled, but the the company seems to still exist at the end of the film, so that, to me, is a little unexplored. But overall, I enjoyed the, the story of the film. I think it was a little talky. It was, there was a lot of exposition. There was a lot of 
unnecessarily wordy terminology, I felt, but overall, I think character-wise, thematic-wise, very, very interesting. I liked it a lot. Wheelard, I think you had more mixed thoughts on this. I mean, like, I enjoyed it. I feel like, the, for one thing, the animation's absolutely beautiful. That's no question whatsoever. This is probably the best animated thing I've seen from Polygon Pictures. Um, but I guess, like, the story, I guess, felt a bit, I don't know, rushed at times, and also kind of just very weirdly presented. Like, it definitely had a problem of, like, telling stuff instead of showing it like i remember one scene where it's like the the main character like he's talking about like his father and how like he killed him but like it's just him saying it instead of like actually just showing a flashback of it which would be a lot more i mean we'd seen the imagery earlier in the film so we already had a sense of what had transpired but yeah i think that during that scene if instead of him telling us that again, we just saw it again and saw it more clearly, that would have been better. But I think the character acting was really strong. So for me, I was not too distracted. Like, it had just been static, it'd be one thing. But, like, the expression work, the body language, like, the character acting in this film was superb. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. So I liked Human Lost. And definitely I thought it was a very interesting movie it definitely leaves a lot of food for thought you know i like movies that have like a have like an idea they're wanting to explore even if it does they don't explore them completely perfectly again i think that the company shell i would have preferred if like they had been they were actively working to disband its control over the state at the end of the film instead of what it seems like the company still exists but the the elites are gone, so I guess the company is neutral. I don't think that's like necessarily a good takeaway, but that's something to explore maybe in a future projects if they uh, make more. I don't know if this film has premiered in Japan yet. I think that it's supposed to actually come out same date as it does the theatrical run in the U.S., so I guess we will see. But it was kind of interesting also. I guess one last thing to note is that as we were leaving the panel... The Japanese producers who had come to introduce the film, like, they were walking right by us. So I just, like, kind of bowed a bit and said thank you as they were walking by. Because it was kind of unexpected. I didn't expect them to see them just walking by us as we were exiting the auditorium. That was kind of an awkward but interesting stage there. But that was not the end of our Saturday because we did something that we probably could have done uh, the last two days, too, because... We were literally three minutes away from this place, but yeah, we went to a place called the Lightbox where Funimation had been doing like these kind of special events where they rented out the space and then they kind of had surrounded the entire room of this space with like images from particular anime. So for Thursday, it was Tokyo Ghoul. For Friday, it was like Fate Grand Order. And then for Saturday, it was One Piece. So we went there. Uh, we got in, we got our free mojitos, which I wasn't really fond of. I didn't think it was very flavorful, so I didn't even finish it. It was a very average mojito. Yeah, and then we were hanging out in the space. There were a few people there, and they had, like, One Piece uh, Pirate Warrior video game boots that they set up so you could play. And then they had, 
I guess a VIP section on the top floor that we couldn't go to because we weren't VIPs. But yeah, really, the space is just they they show clips from the anime and then uh, poster art from the anime all around the space. It's not that much to do once you finish your drink and play the game for a little bit, I guess. So it was fun to check out for like a couple of minutes, you know, just see what it was. Maybe if uh, we were in the VIP section, it would have been more interesting. Yeah, if we had won this press, we probably could have gotten it in. You know what would have been more interesting, too, is if they actually had played, like, the soundtrack from the show instead of, like, just this random pop music. Like, you know, really, that would have been more tone-setting, wouldn't it, if you had played One Piece OST? But I guess not. Well, maybe next time they can think about that. But yeah, that was literally like three minutes away from our hotel, so we could have gone the other two days too, but oh well. Uh, I think checking out once was enough. I don't know if I even drank the mojito every day of it. It's, I didn't even finish it that night. But yeah, we <laughs> we had a nice fun conversation about One Piece with a guy as we were leaving that we were like talking about, well, that was kind of a weird waste of time. And he was like, you know, I have to go travel an hour back to my place where I'm staying. So, you know, this was not worth it for me at all. So, you know, fun conversation with that guy. We went back to the hotel, uh, ate some pizza while watching Tanami. Fell asleep. Woke up late on Sunday. So we didn't get into the thing that I was originally planning to do, which was the We Woke Our Childhood panel, which had a bunch of Nick writers on it, but Instead, we went to another great panel, The Art of Transformers, which was being moderated by David Rudders. And it had Jim Sorensen, who is like the, basically the curator of this new Art Transformers art book that they were coming out with. They had uh, Michael Kelly, vice president of global publishing of Hasbro. We have Livio Ramondello, who's an artist, uh, and uh, Andrew Griffin, an artist on the Transformers comic books. So really, really cool panel of people. And yeah, they just basically kind of explore the history of Transformers through the art and the process of like Wiz reaching out to Hasbro and Jim and to try and get this project together and them looking through the archives and then trying to figure out like what pieces of art should go in and them realizing, oh man, there's so many good pieces of art that it's really hard to narrow this down. Like we had set up this Excel sheet where we had like definite pieces some maybe pieces, uh, so, so, really, like, everything was, like, definitely, so they really had a hard time parsing through, like, what to really, really, really pick out. But it's really cool, we got to see classic art from the animated series, the video games, the movies, and the comics, so, really neat stuff. Uh, it did definitely stump me on the trivia question they did to determine, like, what prize they were going to give out which was like a question for Transformers animate, animated which was like Starscream has all these Starscream clones all of them were voiced by Tom Kenny except for one who was it and it was like yeah that was a hard one I didn't remember the answer to that but hey good on the person who did because that was a definite tough one I think oh they also mentioned a fun thing about like there's this Transformers comic from the Christmas issue of 1985 Women's Day that's like a rare comic strip that they weren't able to track down. But like, that was kind of interesting. They also mentioned that they reviewed over 4,700 images for this thing, which was really cool. And 
Yeah, so I thought that it was a really interesting panel, and I thought it was really fun. Again, we encountered your Ryan again at the end of the panel. And then uh, we went to the exhibitors hall because I thought I would uh, catch Ronka Taylor on the live stage since I missed her panel earlier. But around that same time at 1 p.m., uh, Jim Sorensen was actually doing a signing for the Transformers art book that was actually free. And even if you didn't have the art book, they had these art book samplers where Jim would sign. And those samplers were free. So... I got online for that because I was there around 1 p.m. and it was pretty early. And yeah, it was really neat uh, like to get the sampler and the art is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, I'm definitely tempted to pick up that art book, you know, just to revisit all this history and this art because it's really super cool. And Jim is such an awesome guy to talk to. You know, we had just a short chat, but I just mentioned how much I like the panel and how much I like, you know, revisiting art history. So... You know, that's something we're both passionate about, so it's really, really cool. Then after that, I rushed on over to the Ronica Taylor at the live stage. It was a little late, but I caught most of it, and it was fun, you know, just seeing her talk about, like, some of some experiences she had playing Ash, uh, answering some fun questions about, like, the weirdest thing she's ever had to sign, which was, like, one person had made, like, this this paper mache bra shaped like Pokeballs, that she wanted Veronica Taylor to sign while she was wearing it. And so that was very awkward. Why? <laughs> I don't know. But it was, it was funny and it was a good anecdote. And Veronica Taylor ended the panel by saying, New York Comic Con, I choose you. Which made the 83-year-old and me squeal a bit. It was, it was really nice. So... Yeah, got to see Ron Taylor a little bit. And actually, I think she was being interviewed by uh, Andre the Black Nerd on YouTube. So that was also cool to see him as the moderator for that. But yeah, after that, I mean, I guess, what were you doing around this time, Leroy? Were you doing... I was mainly just chilling and drinking coffee. Neat. Oh, but we both met up uh, for the Manga Ikimashoka panel later that afternoon. That was basically the last event of our day was attending this panel, which was hosted by... Well, it was it had a panel of guests. It was a comicsology panel where they had a bunch of folks like uh, Misaki Hito, who was also on the Kodansha panel, uh, Erica Friedman, who we previously had on the show before and who I was super excited to you know, meet in person. They had Seth Byrne, and they also had uh, Kel McDonald on it. So basically how the panel worked was like they just gave recommendations to the audience, you know, the audience uh, raised their hand, they say, you know, I like this sort of thing, can you recommend me some manga that I'd also enjoy? And that's how they did it. And in the synopsis of the panel, they kind of went over that, you know, you can mention Western comic TV movie or anything like that, and they'll find a manga to match. So I kind of wanted to go that route and, uh, instead of saying, hey, what genre of thing, or what's a series similar to this other manga anime series? So I uh, so remember Miracle Workers, that show I watched on the plane right there, I decided to bring that up again. And I asked them, you know, have you heard of the TV show Miracle Workers? Explain the premise a bit. And then Erica was like immediately, Saint Young Men, that sounds like the thing you're describing in terms of playing with religious characters in a kind of a sitcom-y, chill way. And then Nisaki recommended Heaven's Design Team, which is also very similar. 
uh, in terms of, you know, again, in heaven, there's a department of people who are working to create new things and some hijinks and fun shenanigans ensue. But a lot of great recommendations were made at the panel. It was uh, pretty fun stuff. I really appreciated that there were so many kids at the panel super excited to learn more about manga and like asking for recommendations. And that was really adorable and nice. And yeah, I mean, we were sitting like in the second row and right behind this one kid who had like this drawing of Naruto he made. That was, that was kind of adorable. So I like that. I guess one thing to mention is that we actually ended up being the first people in line for this panel. Like, we weren't the first people in the room because I think there were, of course, VIP priority entrance people. But, yeah, we were actually managed to be first in line for a panel and the first, I think that's the first time that's ever happened to us. Would you agree about that, Lord? Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Mm-hmm. And then the panel went pretty well, except for, I think, one moment where someone recommended Rural Kenshin as a battle manga and it was I saw Erica's face when that happened, and she was like, what? And then I was yeah. like, what? It was like, ooh. Not- I think the panelists who recommended that didn't know about Watsky. Or they or didn't remember, or something like that. Yeah, like, don't recommend Kenshin to people. Just don't. Yeah. But now, after the panel, we chatted with Erica a bit. It was super nice to, you know, meet her in person. And, you know, we just talked a bit about, like, whether she'll be an enemy in NYC, and, you know, she's going to be there. She's going to have her 100 Years of Yuri panel there. She's going to have a event with Zach Davison there, so I'm looking forward to attending those. It's a lot of fun stuff. That was a good end to our con experience, so then we just headed back and took our flight home, and that was it. That was the New York Comic-Con 2019 experience. And what did you think of your first New York Comic Con viewer overall? I thought it was pretty fun. I mean, I was expecting it to be AX levels of hectic. <laughs> and it was nowhere near that bad. It was pretty damn chill. Like, yeah. it was really well organized. It was very easy to get into the convention center. It was very easy to get into panels. Like, there was never any moment where I felt overwhelmed to a point of, like, exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Which is nice, because you feel that all the time at AX. Like, there's always, like, if I need to, like, find a place to get some breathing room or sit down, it's not that hard. Um, And, like, it doesn't feel like a stressful experience, which is nice. Yeah, I thought it was actually really chill as well. I mean, I was surprised, because that was my impression of it from my previous time attending. But, yeah, I thought... This was actually a really great experience, and I had a really great time. Like, I, there was no real frustrations at any points throughout the four days, besides maybe a few bathroom uh, break times. But otherwise, everything went really, really smoothly and efficiently. The uh, volunteers were all on the ball, uh, and it was very clear where everything was and how to get there. And we didn't have any hard it breaks in terms of not making it into you know panels we had laid, waited in line for. So, man, it was just a really, really good con experience. And a lot of great memories and events happened out of it. I even, even got to meet some great people. So, yeah, just a great con overall. Like, I don't know if we'll do NYCC again next year just because, you know, competing with NYCC and Anime NYCC, is it really worth it to go to New York 
twice yeah. in two months in and, a row. And to be honest, like a lot of the big anime and manga stuff is shifting over to anime and YC anyways, it seems. So for our personal interests, it's kind of better to go there instead if we have to pick one or the other. Yeah, so anime and YC might be the one we choose if we make that choice, but I definitely wouldn't be opposed to it if, like, there was a reason, opportunity to, like, if we were ever doing paid coverage and we, for a New York Comic Con, I would definitely go. Like, I enjoy the show, so, you know, if we had a good excuse or reason to go, I would go again. Like, I think the con has really improved since I last went there, and, uh, you know, even the food in the Java Center, we didn't touch upon that in the a whole lot, but I think there's actually a lot of good options now, and I think that generally the prices are pretty competitive and kind of work what you'll find in the nearby vicinity at the very least. So, and even then, in terms of like getting food, there are like good periods where you know you won't have too much lines to worry about, and you can get it pretty easily. So yeah, I didn't even think the food situation was too bad this year as well. So. Very, very uh, pleasantly happy and surprised, and really, really had a great time at anime uh, at New York Comic Con. So, yeah, I think that does it for NYCC 2019. We talked once again a lot about this con, but that's because so much happens at these things. But I hope you kind of enjoyed our rundown, and I hope you'll look forward to our eventual Anime NYC report coming later in a couple weeks or so. So, V-Lord, I guess we'll wrap this up. Where can the little people find you? Yeah, the people can find me on Twitter at VLordGTZ, and you can find my manga focus content on all-comic.com. We're doing a lot of reviews there of a lot of new manga that are coming out, and it's only they continue to ramp up. So yeah, check that out. And you can also find my Toonami-related stuff on ToonamiFaithful.com. I have uh, several articles coming up um, in the coming weeks, so look out for those. And very soon, we're starting up the Demon Slayer podcast on uh, Demon Slayer podcast on ToonamiFaithful.com. And that's going to be a ton of fun. We're going to be talking about the dub of Demon Slayer that will be airing on Tanami, as well as the weekly Simulpub chapters. And I'll be bringing on a rotating set of guests for that, for the first uh, chapter that we're reviewing. I'm having on uh, Microwavy Marion from Twitter, as well as our good friend Sakaki. So... I'm sure that's going to be a great discussion, and uh, just make sure to check it out. Our uh, Twitter for that is D Slayer Podcast, so go follow that. Yeah, I look forward to listening to it. And as for me, you can find me at Ulam Ramayasha on Twitter. Ulam Ramayasha on a variety of places like Animation Revelation and Atlas, Reverters Ulam Ramayasha. That's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews at all-comma.com. I write manga and anime reviews on there. I also have another side podcast called Lum Squad that should be resuming any day now, but you can also check that out there. It's a podcast focused on Yurisei Yasura. And, yeah, of course, as for Manga Mavericks, you can find us at Manga Mavericks on Twitter. Or rather, at Manga underscore Mavericks on Twitter. And Manga Mavericks on YouTube. Manga Mavericks on all-comma.com. 
Manga Mavericks on iTunes and all your uh, podcast platforms of choice. You can uh, subscribe to us, rate and review us on iTunes. That helps the show out immensely. Subscribing us to YouTube and watching our content on there also helps us a ton too. If you have any feedback for us, questions, comments, criticism, dots on New York Comic Con, or anything of the sort, you can send that to mangabarics at gmail.com. And if you want to support the show, you can subscribe to patreon.com slash mangamavericks to just throw in like a monthly support donation to the show. Uh, we have a $2 tier that gives you early access to new episodes. we got a $5 tier that gives you access to a monthly bonus podcast. We've got a slew of podcasts we've already released in that tier, including a bunch of at movies episodes where we've gone in-depth on a ton of movies like Alita Battle Angel, Dragon Ball Super Broly, and currently we've got a series coming out called Manga Members Book Club, where Colton and Grand Thief are going over JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Phantom Blood, volume by volume. So you definitely want to check that out if you're a fan of JoJo's and subscribe to that $5 tier on our Patreon. We've also got $10 tiers for access to uh, show notes and uh, some behind-the-scenes material, as well as a $15 tier for bloopers and uh, outtakes and unreleased podcasts that you can get access to. And we've also got a $20 tier for you to subscribe and uh, request us to do a podcast. So if you want to request us to do a podcast, you can subscribe to that dollars here. So Patreon, slash Manga Mavericks, definitely, you know, join some support there if you like what we do, if you want to help us continue to make more content for you guys. But I think that about does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks, and we will see you in the next one. Sayonara. Later. Later.